Hi, this is Don Coscarelli, the director and writer of Phantasm, and you are listening to Horror Movie Podcast. month welcome to horror movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies this is typically a bi-weekly show that's released every other friday but to help you celebrate october the month of halloween we bring you weekly releases and the first two weeks of october we reviewed dutifully the puppet master franchise and for these next two episodes we're going to bring you our hellraiser franchise coverage so in this show here, episode 157, we're going to discuss the first five Hellraiser movies. Well, mostly Dave. And then in next week's show, we're going to discuss uh, six through ten. And on Horror Movie Podcast, you get in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I'm your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave Dr. Shockbacker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. Wolfman Josh and Jay, sometimes I used to try and pretend I was dreaming all this pain, but some things have to be endured, and that's what makes the pleasures so sweet. <laughs> well done. That was a good quote. There was artistry in your quote, much like there is artistry in these films. Speaking of artists... We have a very special guest for you this week, and we're so excited. Um, he is the host of Universal Monsters Cast, also the host of Retro Movie Geek, and also the host of October's very special Spooky Flicks Fest extravaganza. Welcome to the show, Gilman Joel. Thank you very much, Jay, Wolfman, Dr. Shock. I am happy to be here. Uh, back with uh, all my cohorts, you guys are all my good friends. Uh, but of course, two of my wonderful co-hosts. Because at, at best, Jay, I am a I am like a third tier co-host on Universal Monsters Cast with these guys because these guys <laughs> are fantastic. And eventually, someday, we will do another one. And I heard you, I heard you say it, Josh. I heard you say we're covering Full Moon's Creeps at some point. We've got to um, do it. We've got to do it. As soon as you said it, I was actually at a, I was at the gym. I'm working out. I actually paused. I went, yes, yes, let's do this. <laughs> let's right now. Let's <laughs> so, mm. I am down for it. Bob, thank you guys for having me. I, this is awesome. It's wonderful. So um, I get a couple things for you here, Joel, in a second. But first, I want to hear about Wolfman. I understand you had a, a pretty wild evening. Is that true? Oh man, you guys, um, I have, this is the lamest excuse for not watching movies ever on the show, but I, I basically, I didn't get to all the films tonight because I ate too much sushi. <laughs> and then you, and then, and then like Jay, you fell asleep. No. <laughs> right. I, my, my friend invited me to any foodies out there. This is actually really cool. Uh, my friend's a sushi chef and he invited me to this event where, uh, they were taking a, an, an entire bluefin tuna which is a giant, beautiful fish, and they were taking it completely apart from whole to sushi, 
and um it's an incredibly rare fish like they they do raise them now but to get one in the wild they're worth so much money and they're um like i guess there was one that sold for like close to a million dollars last year in japan oh, wow. and wow um, yeah so we got to partake uh of a little bit of that tonight and and the whole event was supposed to be an hour and a half and i was there for like four hours so i've lost my voice from all the all the partying <laughs> that took place <laughs> right gotcha and uh but yeah I, I that that was some expensive sushi that's so would you say you indulged in pleasure nice. and pain <laughs> <laughs> yes. i like that exactly Speaking of pleasure and pain, Joel, um, tell enough said. I just stopped there. Full stop. <laughs> tell the uh, the listeners a little bit about Spooky Flicks Fest. This is one of my favorite Halloween season type of celebrations. Yeah, well, it's something that we have done since the show was called Forgotten Flicks back in I think we started in 2011. So this is the eighth year of us doing this. Uh, every year we, you know, October. I am. I am. Well, Peter, who is my my co-host as well, is also a big horror fan. Daryl is a he'll watch horror movies. <laughs> I, I don't know that I would call him a big fan. I think that might be a stretch. Mm -hmm. um, it depends on the movie. So but every year we cover these films. Uh, we started with my my good friend, uh, Jason Grooms, like I said, when we did Forgotten Flicks. And it's progressively gotten a little bit more involved uh, every year, although I'd say this year isn't quite as bad as a couple years ago. I don't know. Uh, I think all three of you were involved in that one. I, Dave, I believe that was the year we did the Salem's Lot uh, with you. <laughs> yeah. I know. I was at Children of the Corner Pet Cemetery. I feel like we covered Pet, one of those. Pet Cemetery, yes. Okay. And mm -hmm. then Josh, I, I'm pretty sure you were on for one of those as well. Maybe not, but I um, thought. I've done know. Scream and The Burbs with you guys. That's the only two you've done? Other than uh, well, this. I did a did a new one this year yeah, for this, this year. year. Really, for some reason, I thought you were okay. But, but then maybe that was the year that you hadn't done one yet. But it was we had a ton. I mean, there was a lot of episodes this year. We're going to end up with anywhere from 15, 16, 7, I don't know, somewhere in that range episodes. Uh, so normally it's a weekly show, but we're releasing like three plus episodes a week at this point. So nice. uh, I've been, yeah, it, it's it's a lot. And uh, I'm, I'm rethinking my my life choices basically at this point <laughs> but it is it is fun uh we enjoyed doing it this year is all about horror anthologies we, we've been trying to pick a theme the last couple of years uh last year was like the creepy evil doll theme and so this year is uh horror anthologies initially i wanted to do italian horror but i i sort of got a got a vibe that that may have been the the top tier of a uh, I'm not going to name names but <laughs> so, yeah so we'll uh so we went with the horror anthologies which i'm also a huge fan of so Nice. <laughs> and and you had each one of us like yes. Dave, Josh and I have all been on one of those episodes. Yes. So. yes. And I think yeah. so by the time this episode comes out, Jay, I'm not sure exactly when uh, you're planning on putting this out, but I pretty sure everybody's but Dave's might have already been out, which is so in other words, I don't mind saying so Jay, Jay was on for uh, two evil eyes, mm -hmm. which is the of course, the Ramiro Argento uh, classic. Uh, Josh was on for John Carpenter's Body Bags, which we had a, a great time talking about. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Dave is on for the Tales from the Crypt episode. Now, this is not the wonderful anthology TV show, which I'm a huge fan of. This is the 1972, I believe, uh, film yeah. uh, of the same title that uh, I think we all enjoyed. And I will say all three of your movies were fantastic. So far, the one that I wish I had started with just because every movie afterwards, no matter what it was, including Dead Time Stories, would have seemed like a great work of art is 
Night Train to Terror from 1985. <laughs> Just watch the first 10 minutes, folks, and you'll understand everything of what I'm saying. It's... Wow. <laughs> I think you had recorded uh, that one just before. Yes, we did Tales from the Crypt. And, and, and I think because after because I saying like Tales from the Crypt is the greatest anthology movie I'd ever seen. I think. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> you you and Peter just could not stop talking about how how bad that was. Oh my god, it was. And I normally I you know look yeah movies some movies are bad and you talk about them not being great. I try not to completely just dump all over a movie, but that movie, yikes! And if you're a fan of it, I apologize, but. Right. But yes, we had fun with your three movies. <laughs> they were they were a great time and uh, I hope people listen in. So it's it's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well and we'll have it linked in the show notes there so people can find it easily. And speaking of Pet Cemetery, the next thing I was going to ask you is Joel, what did you think of the new Pet Cemetery trailer? Yes, I just watched that today and uh, watched it with my wife who actually did not have the reaction I thought she'd have to be honest with you because she's a she's a horror fan as well and she loves the original Pet Cemetery as I do. Uh, I'm sure like a, a lot of you listening and and you guys as well saw it, you know, when it came out the theater, mm-hmm. uh, I was 13. My dad took me, you know, uh, my mom was not happy, but my dad took me and uh, it, uh, it just blew me away. Then still affects me today. I am a huge fan of that original. I, I'm to a point now where with remakes and everything, if they're done well, or especially if it's based on, on source material, like what they did with it, I feel like it's it's a little bit different. Sort of like, you know, a restaging of a Shakespearean play. It's not exactly the th- same thing as taking an original uh, property and remaking it. Uh, so mm. I feel a little differently about it. But uh, the trailer, I liked it. Mm-hmm. But I'm sort of, I'm reserving my, like, my real judgment for when I sit down. Like, I felt like I did not come away from that trailer going, oh, God, like it was not that reaction at all. Uh, I love the cast. Uh, I like Jason Clark a lot. I think he was a great casting. So good. Yeah, so good for, for Lewis. I, I was on paper, like when I saw John Lithgow as as uh, as Jed, I was ec- ecstatic. I was just like, oh, that's perfect. Because I could totally hear him doing, you know, Saul Tom's dad is better. Like I just totally <laughs> could hear that accent. And then I heard him in the trailer. I'm like, he sounds like John Lithgow. What, what, what the hell? But that, so that was probably my only, and I know that's a really stupid, superficial thing, but it was, but I liked his look. I thought um, I'm in, interested to see how they handle certain aspects. I, I heard someone make a comment that they really, really hope, because obviously uh, uh, all I have to say is say, Rachel is not shown until <laughs> I do not want to see her until we are in the theater. Like, I don't want to see her in a trailer. I don't want to see her in her promotional materials. I'm sure they'll do it. I'm sure they'll show her at some point, but I don't want to see her because the rumor, and I hope this is not giving anything away I've heard, is that it's going to be a lot more in line with the book. And as I recall, it's been a long time since I've read that book, but it's like, she's a little girl pretty much in that. So whereas she's played much older in, in the Zelda characters, what we're talking about, of course, uh, it, you know, in the, <laughs> in the 89 movie, I, can only imagine how potentially horrifying it will be. And that, so that kind of stuff, how are they going to handle the gauge stuff? I mean, there's so many elements. I'm just curious to see, and I don't know uh, how you guys felt about it, but I will say the piece that I thought they just did even maybe better than the 89 version is the way that truck goes by mm-hmm. it. They made the, it, something about the way they shot it and the, the, the effect, just the sound, everything they make that highway seem so much more deadly and dangerous than it yeah. ever seemed. Like, you know what I mean? Like it just mm-hmm. like, you're like, Oh crap. Yeah. People are going to die horribly. This is awful. So, uh, yeah. So I, in one way I'm really excited about it, but there were certain tropes and things that seemed a little bit familiar from a lot of, you know, more modern 
horror that I was like, eh, okay, yeah, okay, we'll go, give it a chance. Well, you know, it's not, I, I definitely am intrigued, interest peaked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I guess I was just, because you and I are both scared to death of Zelda. And, yes. and by the way, as you should be. Yeah. <laughs> Joel and I always talk about that. But, uh, and I was hoping to get a glimpse of Zelda and I didn't. You wanted it? I did. I don't want to see her, man. Really? I, 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 I might I, be surprised. I want to like be like, oh my God. That's what I'm hoping for when I'm in the theater. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, fair enough. And, and the thing is, I like, I like Jason Clark as the lead better than the original lead, but um, John Lithgow is not cutting it for me, even though he's not a great a, actor. Not a Fred, that was my, that was going to say my wife's reaction. Her, as soon as it is, she goes, I like Fred Gwynn better. Right. <laughs> she, yeah. she was, she's like, I just, it, that was her sticking point. She just really, as, the, uh, as Jed, she just was not a, a real big fan. And I think it was because the, the one thing, the original, and again, we're just going on one trailer that was obviously quick cut and the tone of the movie could be completely different. Mm -hmm. But there, if you really watch some behind the scenes stuff, they were really trying to capture the main feeling and that they shot it in Maine and you know Mary Lambert just did such a brilliant job with handling so many of the aspects of that movie that and and to me Fred Gwynn just his the way he embodied that character it just I'm not from Maine I've never been to Maine but I imagine it's sort of like the you know everything I've ever read with Stephen King like that's what it felt like to me like they that movie embodied it and mm -hmm. so I don't know that this movie captures that but it does look scary as hell in its own right. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the best. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Amy Simons, you know, indie movie queen and star of science fiction classic Upstream Color. And uh, she sent out an awesome tweet today with the trailer. She said, my parents let me read Stephen King when I was eight years old. I went on a tear, Cujo, Christine, it, and then the most disturbing emotion, emotionally, Pet Cemetery. Pinch me. I am Rachel Creed. So I thought that's pretty cool. That's that cool. cool. I like having a fan uh, involved in making the film. You know, they're going to bring everything they have to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Heart, as they say. Dave, did you get to see the trailer? No, I have not. I didn't get to see it yet. I was watching Hellraiser. Okay. <laughs> Dave's like, Hellraiser I was five. He was watching Hellraiser five. He couldn't Dave's watch like, the Pets of trailer. Dave's like, I was doing our homework. So, uh, all right, Jerk. fair enough. <laughs> and then Joel, also on the agenda, we wanted to ask you what you think of your uh, new Fangoria edition. I am ecstatic. I, I think I've, I, you guys know, I, I've made it well known. I am in, in, in like a ridiculous, just sycophantic fanboy for Fangoria. Um, it, it was a massive, massive, massive part of my childhood. I remember getting my first issue, seventh grade, 1988. Uh, it had Michael Myers from Halloween 4 on the cover, Lair of the White Worm, um, and I think, I don't remember what the other, there was another major feature in it, but the point is, I, I Child's Play. I think Child's Play was the other thing that was covered, and it just, it freaked me out. You know, I'm like 12, 13 years old, whatever, and from that point on, though, all through high school, I get it, I, I, an entire wall, I've talked about this on my show, an entire wall that was just a collage of images from that magazine and my grandmother was convinced I was going to be a serial killer because of that. And <laughs> it's, it, so it's had a huge, huge impact in my life. And then you know, as you get older and things go on and you kind of get away from it and I would pick it up every once in a while. The newsstand, I'm like, eh, it just doesn't, eh. it, it was missing something for me, especially in the last few years that it was around. And then it just was gone. So, and I would look it up on the web and it's like, Oh man, it's gone, man. It's, it's gone. It, mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the rumblings, Oh, it's coming back. And I just got my issue in, was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday, right? Was that what I texted you guys? I believe I so. Yeah. 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 Yesterday. It, all, it, it all bleeds together. And so I, I got the issue. I will say, because I don't want to spoil it in case anybody out there hasn't gotten there, if they're subscribing, which you should be if you haven't had a chance. 
their goal is to put it out as a uh, quarterly a film magazine it is not this is not your 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 mammies or your pappies fango okay and yet in a weird way it <laughs> is actually i think josh may have been your interview with him is that because you did an interview with him, right? Back yeah, in the day. that's okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right, and, and so I think it was that interview where he said, "If you saw it, like not even fully across the room, but if you just were to look at it sitting up in you know your room, it would look like an original issue of Fango." And he's right; it does. It, it they captured that vibe, but the quality of the magazine—it's really a good quality magazine. I mean, you know, if you ever flip through like Film Comment or you know, like a really mm -hmm. a nice kind of heavy, just quality magazine. That's what it feels like. So nice. uh, uh, lots of uh, throwback uh, features and articles in it that that will remind you of the old days. And, and some are just straight up, you know, uh, they, they've got uh, certain things in there that you'll wax nostalgia for and new a lot of new stuff too. So uh, I haven't read it, read it, because I don't want to just like rip through it. So I kind of just spent the first day just kind of skimming and just like, you know, kind of thumbing through it and going, just going to go you know, article a day, just kind of, you know, make it last because the next one I don't think comes out till January. So we have to wait. But I think that was a really smart move on their part to keep it as something that's not going to just be mm -hmm. um, so easily like, oh, it's coming out every month and, you know, you can kind of get it, take it or leave it. It's, uh, it's everywhere. No. To my knowledge, you have to subscribe to it. I, I told you, Jay, I'm going to find out. I'm, I'm still supposed to interview someone from Fangoria tomorrow, actually. So mm -hmm. I'm going to ask, is this going to be available on newsstands as well? Because mm -hmm. I kind of got the vibe, and Josh, again, this may have been from your interview, that there wasn't 100% confirmation on that. Right. So uh, so it's definitely a subscription situation. And uh, But if you're a fan of Fango, of horror, of whatever, I say subscribe to it, get it. It's worth it. All right. That's excellent. Well done. Thank you. Honestly, seeing Michael Myers on the cover was enough to kick my button to gears. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking the same thing. I, I like to purchase magazines at the bookstore because I like to support like physical bookstores. But um, yeah. it sounds like, yeah, I'm not getting that vibe because I called them and I even asked our local bookstore, hey, do you have Fangoria yet? And they didn't even know what I was talking about. So I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> so, what is that? So it's discouraging. So I, got, right. I think I'm just going to have to subscribe. So, all right. And, and just the last thing before we get underway with Hellraiser, um, I just wanted to recognize the, uh, the passing of Scott Wilson. A lot of people would know him as uh, Herschel Green on The Walking Dead. Oh, uh, yes. He died oh, at I didn't know that. 76. Yeah. And it was... Very, very sad loss. He's also in the Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. He's in The Host and on Justified. And anyway, he will be missed. I, I really like that dude. That's a great actor. Okay, just want to give everybody the heads up. Of course, since this is a franchise review, we will be discussing major plot spoilers potentially for the entire Hellraiser franchise. So especially in this episode, the first five films, but everything's fair game. So I just wanted to give you a warning ahead of time. And that goes for all of the movies. I mean, I don't know how much we'll go in depth on some of the later films, but especially the first couple of films, <laughs> you're going to get some serious spoilers. <laughs> I think, I think the time has come and uh so let's move into Some things must be endured that's right <laughs> so let's move into our feature review of hellraiser from 1987. hellraiser beyond any terror you have imagined a nightmare 
Unlike anything you have witnessed, <laughs> is born. Because within these walls, the unholy is unleashed. Hellraiser is a horror film, obviously, from 1987, and it was written and directed by Clive Barker. Uh, I'm just going to do the lazy man's way out and just read the uh, Imdaba one line <laughs> synopsis because I feel like this is one of those movies that uh, you could easily immediately start going down all the rabbit trails if you try to right. go too in depth into the synopsis. So True. it says an unfaithful wife encounters the right off the bat, the zombie of her dead lover. The demonic Cenobites are pursuing him after he escaped their sadomasochistic underworld. So that's maybe 70% correct. Um, <laughs> as, as, as uh, the IMDB uh, often is. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, uh, I think it is one of those horror films that I know for me, I, I don't want to speak for you guys, but for me, it's not on the same level in my experience as a ho younger horror fan as Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, uh, you know, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even you know, the dead films. I mean, pretty much all other Halloween, if I add to that one, uh, all, all those franchises had a bigger overall impact on my my fandom and on my experiences as a horror fan. Mm -hmm. But because let's just say because a pinhead, <laughs> I was he was such an iconic figure. It's it's almost like he transcended the movie he was in so that I well long before I ever saw this film, which I didn't see it till probably at least a few years after it had come out. I may even have seen part two and three, I think, before I saw the first one finally. Um, but I can even remember going to a video store when it must have first come to video and seeing that poster. You know, with with him holding the the puzzle box, and you know, it'll tear your soul up, or he'll tear your soul apart, and it, <laughs> it just it was this shocking, frightening thing. Because at that time, I mean, you'd never seen anything like that. I mean, right. you'd never just the the leather and the pins and the the body piercing. I mean, that was in you know, eighty seven. That's not that was not a thing. <laughs> it was you know, well, at least not in in the mainstream by any stretch. So it's interesting how he just became this this figure that to me became so iconic. I mean, it's, I won't say necessarily on the same popularity levels, maybe a Freddie or, or Jason even, but I feel like he's in, he's in that conversation. Mm -hmm. So, um, but as a series to me, Hellraiser is very interesting because the first film I think has a lot to commend about it. And I think a lot of, and obviously I know a lot of folks who just love it to death. It, it's, but as a series, it's interesting how many, it's, I'm about to say something that I hope will not come across as heresy to compare it to say children of the corn or the howling. <laughs> but those are also examples of movies that are series where the first film at least is, is great. has its, you know, it has its fans, has, its, has its detractors, but they're great. But then all the subsequent sequels get, and then once you get up into these, you know, higher numbers are just so out there and just, I mean, I'm not, I, full disclosure, I've not seen most of the Hellraiser sequels. I've seen one, two, three. I think I saw four. Was that the one in space? 
Does anybody recall offhand? Yes, okay, but that, was that, one in, that was the I, one in space. I feel like I that may be where I went, ah, okay. <laughs> I'm good. Uh, maybe. Uh, so I definitely, I actually kind of remember liking three. Two is so, I, I just remember being this just bizarro nightmare logic kind of movie. Um, but but again, the thing to commend about these films in my mind is the effects work, especially for the, I mean, the first film was made, I think, for under, uh, it was under a million bucks, like a $900,000 budget. Hmm. And it's just, the level of of craft and imagination, what I perceived as just a lot of imagination because it's Barker. You know, I mean, the thing is that Clyde Barker, actually my favorite Clyde Barker movie was and probably is Nightbreed. I mean, I just love Nightbreed. You mean so, even over Rawhead Rex? I was going to say, actually, that was the first Barker film I saw without realizing it was Barker. Yeah. I actually remember renting Rawhead Rex. Yes. I actually liked it when I was a kid. Me I liked too. It. I have a real soft spot for that. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so, and I remember even thinking because I don't want to give anything away, but there is some uh, violence and things that happen in that movie mm -hmm. to some key characters that I remember even as a kid, like being shocked by that. It was like, <laughs> they went there. Yeah. And, yes. uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's got, it's definitely has its, uh, maybe it's, uh, um, holes, let's just say in some issues, mm -hmm. but, uh, and, and, but for years I didn't even realize that was a Barker story. Like I had no idea. Cause it's, it seems kind of out of his realm. Like I, I always think of his stuff as having a very, yes, monsters, but specific kinds of monsters, whereas Rodhead Rex was kind of this Sasquatchian sort of <laughs> werewolfy beast thingy. Yeah. Um, beastly but, freak uh, is what we call yeah, it. Beastly freak, total beastly freak. <laughs> but whereas, you know, so many of his other stories, and, and that's the other thing, is I don't know how many of you guys have read his work, but I, I was like going through it, because like, again, Barker is one of those guys who's so ubiquitous with horror as I was growing up, and as I'm thinking through, I read a lot of his nonfiction stuff. In fact, he wrote a book, I want to, Dave, you may even have this. Do you remember that horror book he wrote? I think it came out in the 90s. It was like an encyclopedia of horror. Do you remember mm -hmm. that? Like I don't. Is, a to Z of horror, something like that. He, and I loved it. That was great. So I read some of his nonfiction stuff. I I owned a couple of his books, but I just never got around to them. I read a lot of King and Koontz and people like that, but I never a lot of uh, uh, Barker. And then actually, in my preparation for this, I didn't get all the way through it, unfortunately, as I uh, went ahead and got the audiobook for Hellbound Heart, which Hellraiser is based on, uh, and uh, started listening to it. And the man's use of language and actually if you can find uh, the audible version that i got it's actually barker reading it himself and he's got such a pleasant wonderful voice that nice. it's just his use of language and his the images he creates uh, i mean the guy i mean people throw around that whole creative genius in the documentary i mentioned to you and i'll mention it later on when we get into this uh they, you know several people that work with him threw it around i feel like when you think about all of the levels of art he's into painting uh you know writing filmmaking all these aspects of it, he, you know, the guy, I think that moniker could be applied. He, <laughs> pretty he's easy. like, uh, he's like the Daniel Johnston of uh, horror movies, right, Josh? No, Josh is like. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I would. I would people, not in any way compare him with Daniel Johnston. <laughs> people, people are not feeling my uh, my analogies lately in these past few episodes. <laughs> that was a hell of a pause, Josh. <laughs> I knew he was thinking about it though. Yeah. But, but anyway, I, that's, so that's my, my general take on it. I'm sorry. I hope I went in the direction you wanted me to. So, uh, <laughs> Hellraiser 1987. I, I loved it. That was great. Um, now Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I recall, Hellraiser is in, is your number five in your top 10 all time favorite horror films. Is that right? That is correct. And, and, and tell us why that is Dave. 
a, a few reasons, really. I mean, jo- um, Joel had uh, touched on a few of them, obviously, with, with Pinhead and the Cenobites. Uh, even though they don't have a lot of screen time, they make the most of when they are on screen. Um, Andrew Robinson is an actor I've always I've always liked his work. Um, you know, in, in Dirty Harry, he was that really just vile, despicable character, Scorpio, uh, and was mm-hmm. great as it. Um, and that's usually the type of character he plays or variations of that. I mean, even when he had that uh, recurring role in Deep Space Nine, he's kind of this this uh, guy you can never really trust to see him in this movie play against that kind of type was new for me and was, I thought was interesting. And I, and again, I liked, you know, I liked seeing that, but I think watching it again the other night, I think what it really is, is just how dark this movie is right out of the gate. And it just stays there. Mm-hmm. It sort of dwells in the shadows and the darkness and the evil is always sort of, permeating there's there's no really light moments at least none that that are that last for a long time because you always have that undercurrent of of the wife and and uh what's going on with the brother that's just there and so you're you're it's sort of keeping you down in the darkness with it throughout until it finally gets to that and 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 it's almost it's almost like what goes on at the end as as scary as it was for me the first time I saw it it was almost a release in a way from the darkness that you're finally like okay this is all terrible and, and what's happening is is awful but it's it's sort of releasing it and I think that's what really stayed with me about this movie is just it just holds you there it keeps you there and I got that feeling again watching it. I mean, I've seen it several times, and I got that feeling all over again watching it uh, the other night. <laughs> I agree with that. Actually, it's um, there are a few horror films that 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 come to mind readily that feel like they have like a genuine like evil uh, tone to them. Right. Like not just you know, because a lot of horror films depict evil beings or monsters, but some of them just feel evil at their core like and 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 i feel hereditary well that would be a good recent example the one that really did that to me was the the new evil dead remake man that that Mm -hmm. one that one felt genuinely evil to me when i was watching relentless that was relentless Yeah. yeah but but this has that too now dave i've heard you say in the past as well when you're talking about this that because of your um now correct me if i'm if I'm misremembering, but like mm-hmm. because of your, your Catholic school upbringing, um, this movie like scared you into, you know, not wanting to, you know, cross the line or end up in hell. Yeah, I, I, I did in my review and I'll just read it real quick. Um, cause I did cover this on the blog a few years ago in the 12 years that I attended Catholic school. I can honestly say I was never as frightened of hell as I was at the conclusion of Clive Barker's Hellraiser. 1987 film that introduced you to another iconic character of the world of horror. Yeah, it really, that's true. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you're sitting there in school and then and the nuns and the priests are all talking about heaven and hell. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But then when you <laughs> see something like this, yeah, and it visualizes it and it, and it and it and it brings weight to it, you start saying, oh, that's what they were talking about. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> so it really, it did. It drove it home for me. And I think that's another reason why it's always stayed with me. Mm-hmm. 
Agreed. Wolfman Josh, what's been your experience with the Hellraiser? You know, earlier in the run of this podcast, I used to do a segment called Wolfman's Got Nards, where I would watch the types of movies I wouldn't normally enjoy watching just to kind of do my due diligence as a horror host. Uh, this is exactly the type of movie that would normally fit into uh, a Wolfman's Got Nards segment for me. I think you guys have nailed all the reasons. It's like the dark, oppressive nature of it, the evil kind of implicit in it. But really, like I found Pinhead and the Cenobite so unappealing as a as a young man who was who loved horror and loved classic monsters like werewolves and vampires and zombies. You know, like I remember the particularly the first three Hellraiser movies at the video store. You know, I remember seeing those VHS covers and just come not only but i mean yes being scared but more just having no interest in whatever it was that was inside that <laughs> container you know inside that vhs case like right it was just not at all in my wheelhouse and it's weird because i am because of my like punk rock roots i am interested in like leather and spikes and pyramid belts and you know uh dog pile bondage <laughs> pants but there's a certain level in bondage where I, I don't know it's weird like i like this half and then all of a sudden nope this is absolutely not for me and this movie is well into the wachowski siblings realm of i'm not interested in the black leather at this at this stage um i don't know what it is i hate the look of of the Cenobites and it's kept me away from these movies for all these years. Also just not a Clive Barker fan. You know, when we've talked about Stephen King in the past. He's talked about how there's a warmth to his characters and his world. And even though there's some really evil people and some really evil things and some real darkness in his tales, there is like a certain level of humanity that uh, lives within the pages of a Stephen King novel. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I read Clive Barker, I just, I don't like it. Like it's a great, I feel gross, honestly, to be, to be completely honest. <laughs> so I just was not at all looking forward to watching these films um, for the series. And I don't know that I'd ever seen one all the way through to be completely honest. I remember going back and visiting Inferno when I became aware of Scott Derrickson mm -hmm. um, due to uh, Sinister but other than that, I'd only seen bits and pieces of these films. And so this was my first, I think, real sit-down watch of the Hellraiser franchise. And as I said, due to sushi, I didn't get all of the films watched. I was hoping to have watched for tonight. <laughs> but, um, man, I, on one hand, I think I was totally correct. Like, there is some real uh, shallow, like, hollowness of humanity in this movie. Just some, like dead souls that are in this <laughs> film but on the other hand like it really captured me in a way that i didn't expect it to um there like as you guys have mentioned there aren't there isn't much of the cenobites on screen and so it really is about these people and really about this one lady as the main character to some degree she's kind of the star of the show it, right for mm -hmm. most of it and her journey is interesting. Like, I don't like her and she makes me kind of like uh, nervous or like sick to my stomach, like as a character, but like, man, she, what a compelling character, what a compelling journey that she's going on. And, and yeah, it feels like a morale morality tale. I can see why this would scare you about 
you know, about the idea of hell because you can really see a person kind of going down the ladder toward a hellish experience in this movie. And the movie works really well. There's some great little um, Mr. X that I thought worked really well. It's, it's a, it's a very creative story. I think the visuals for me, like just meat hooks and all that stuff that mm-hmm. starts out with like mm-hmm. when the movie started, I was just like, Oh no, like I do not <laughs> want to watch this for two hours. And then it really wasn't much of that, you know? So in some ways I was spared um, during this, during this film, but, uh, and I could see why fans of that stuff would feel, I would actually feel kind of cheated. If I went to this movie to see pinhead, I would be like, where, give me, where's the pinhead in this movie? I want a lot more pinhead. Um, for me, who wasn't necessarily interested in the pinhead, even like when Cabin in the Woods came out, when there are those characters that are kind of supposed to be the Cenobite characters, mm-hmm. completely lost on me. Like I was instantly not interested in that movie. <laughs> and so it's just, uh, it's just an aesthetic and style that's not pleasing to me. But I was pleasantly surprised with the content of the film and kind of the um, just kind of classic human tragedy at the core of it. Well, I was going to ask you if part of what you thought was off-putting had to do with the fact that this is this is body horror. Um, it, well, I like some types of body horror. You know, I think I like, but I think for me, I'm more interested in the science fiction-y kind of, you know, the fly and type of body horror. Uh, like, mm-hmm. that's really the stuff that I'm interested in. I, 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 I don't, and this is, you know, listen. If this is your thing out there, people live your, live your best life. Do what you want to do <laughs> with your body. I'm really not into body modification. I say that as a tattoo enthusiast and someone who uh, grew up with a lot of piercings and stuff, but, um, but just, I don't know beyond that. Again, it's the same thing with the bondage gear. Like, yeah, I can get into like a punk rock outfit, but I don't want to go beyond a certain degree and <laughs> the pins in the face like that's the that's the that's the shade too far for me like i just like eh, like ugh. so you're not you're not an acupuncture acupuncture fan either right i'm not <laughs> an acupuncture enthusiast <laughs> right um i, I, I just don't like i mean it's an uncanny it's an uncanny thing right like um doing permanent altercations to your body um there's something uncanny about that is an element of horror. And for, and I guess, I guess the real, the truth is it's just much more deeply disturbing to me because it feels more realistic to me than something like the fly, which I can kind of put into a sci-fi category in my mind. Right. What, what were you going to say, Joel? Oh, you know, I was just going to ask. So, does this mean we're not going to see Josh in a gimp outfit at the next meetup? <laughs> I, I will not have a gimp outfit. I will okay. not. I will not have spikes installed in my skull. I'm not going to do any of those things. Yes. No okay. split tongue. Okay. I'm definitely not going to get a bifurcated <laughs> tongue. Own, Josh, teach his own. <laughs> to each their own. If you're into that, if that's your kink or that's your lifestyle choice, that's fine. Like, do it. Go for it. But, um, <laughs> and I know I, I like the weird thing is I know this is this is my personal therapy session. I realize that it is extremely hypocritical. Again, as someone who was like had my tongue pierced, had my nose pierced, had my ears pierced, like have tattoos, plan on getting many more tattoos. But I don't know why there's just a certain line that I'm not like comfortable going beyond, and it really freaks me out. Like it really makes my skin crawl. 
beyond those certain lines, you know? Well, there were two other reasons that I thought you, you might actually be into this because when we watch movies that we're going to be reviewing that we really hadn't discussed a lot together in the past, I always wonder like how you and Dave are going to feel about them. Uh, I mean, I've been listening to Dave for so long now back in the planet macabre days. I, I know a lot of where he's coming from on stuff like this, but for you, Josh, I thought, you know, uh, this does have a lot of mystery to it. I know Josh appreciates mysteries and I, I liked that. And it, it feels like it goes into the weird. Uh, mm. w- w- would you characterize it as such? I, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, I, in fact, I know Clive Barker was greatly influenced by Lovecraft. I'm sure there's a ton of the weird in here. And I'm not like an, a, an expert on the weird by any stretch of the imagination. It's just something that I was kind of interested in mm-hmm. studying up on, but. Yeah, Jay, I mean, this is like that 90s horror that just never appealed to me. You know, I've talked about that on so many episodes of the show, but like, yeah, I really didn't feel like part of the horror community for a big section of my life because I just was not into the movies that were coming out. I was not into like the gothic and the leather and the and I wasn't into any like pretty much any of the late 80s, early 90s franchises from Child's Play to Puppet Master to Hellraiser. It just was not my bag and so um, mm. you know i was still living in those 80s and 70s horror films and um until scream came out and then i kind of had this shift in perspective and said okay like you know i'm back in basically you know and um i kind of got to skip all of this portion of the mm. horror um movement but like i don't know doing this podcast it's been interesting to have to kind of face these things that i never thought I'd like. And on one hand, yeah, I still don't really like Hellraiser or Nightmare on Elm Street more than I thought I would. But on the other hand, just like with Puppet Master, oh yeah, this is, first of all, I have to give it credit. Like, this is not as bad as I thought. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Much, much more watchable. There's a huge amount of artistry on display here. Mm -hmm. It's still not my, tonally my thing or aesthetically my thing, but um, I'm impressed by by the craft. Sure. And uh, random side note, real quick. Do you, do you know who looks good in leather? I bet Dave Becker. I'm, I'm just, I'm just gonna put that out there. <laughs> so leather daddy, Dave Becker. That leather daddy. Leather gloves. That's leather what gloves. we should call him, leather daddy. I love that. Um, daddy. <laughs> so, so Joel. If, if I if I hadn't just drank a beer really fast, I would have a response. <laughs> so, so Joel, I got a question for you, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but um, okay. I'm just gonna admit this publicly. I, I've come to realize now, and this is not false. Somebody recently in the comments said, Jay, Jay is getting so- soft in his old age. And I think that's true, but I got to admit things. Joel is like 20 times the horror fan that I am, like in terms of knowledge and experience. And so I, I'm always like humbled I by mean, him. I'm 20 times softer than you, which is probably true. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Joel, um, the title of this film, Hellraiser, yes. I have I have thought about that a lot. And uh, and I know you've read some Clive Barker, but what I got, are we to understand that because because Frank is such a quote unquote hellraiser in his life, he he's he's like one of those you know wild child type of people who's always into trouble. I mean, does the title refer to him? He's the hellraiser. I I, I well, first off, we'll say I have not read. Virtual, other than nonfiction, much Barker at all. Hence my listening to the audiobook of Hellbound, or okay. uh, yeah, Hell, the the Hellbound Heart. But that being said, 
uh, the original working title for this movie apparently was, according to Wikipedia, so take that for what it's worth, is Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> so that right. is the original title. I think you could read it that way. I I'll be honest with you. I guess I've always been more literal about it. I mean, the box, you open it and you literally raise demons from hell. So I sort of assumed that it's more referring to that aspect of it mm -hmm. uh, some might consider them angels joel just oh that is clear. okay to yeah. be fair it could have been demons to some heaven right <laughs> right <laughs> so okay fair enough well let's talk about that box then uh do you guys uh, and i wonder I don't, I don't know when his original story was published maybe you guys have that there but i wondered if because it's a little puzzle box and it's about exactly the size of a rubik's cube <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's any. I do not think. I mean, okay, look, the story came out in the the film was made '86. I think the story came out around the same time. I think the publish the publishing date is somewhere in that mid '80s time frame. Uh, but I I'm not saying that's not a possibility. But I'm saying I highly doubt it. Well, it was it was invented in '74, so Rubik's Cube did precede this. Oh yeah, oh, and for sure. there was that freaky '80s cartoon. The Rubik's Cube cartoon, you remember that? And he had the little blue head that popped out. Just saying. No, I, I, I remember owning a Rubik's Cube. I remember not having any success with a Rubik's Cube, but I don't remember a cartoon about the Rubik's Cube. I actually Cube. don't remember that either. Okay. Yeah, you're not, you're not making that no, up. I, no, I'm, I'm serious. False like memory. Google image it, a Rubik's Cube cartoon. And, and when Rubik came out, he was a little character. He had this little blue head, kind of like a little troll head. And... um. It was well. I'm glad I don't remember. Yeah, right. I see, that I, I see it. He, he, no, he's right, and it is disturbing. <laughs> it was a terrible cartoon, yeah. but um, I'm sure. So, uh, but about the box, the the Marchand's box is it, is this is this basically a Pandora's box? I mean, that's really what I thought. I'm like, okay, because yes. they are letting out hell. Is that what they were riffing on, or Clive? Was, I, I feel like that's that's probably a much more. Uh, I think so. I, I, yeah. I think there are also ancient puzzle boxes that I'm sure were probably maybe equally as inspiring as the Rubik's cube too. Like, you know, there that's a, a form of puzzle that has existed for a long time. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, so this angle of demons to some angel to others. And then when they had, um, you know, they, they keep saying throughout the films is, you know, the the extremity going beyond the extremities of pleasure and pain i feel like it primarily focuses on pain and it doesn't give a lot of the pleasure aspect i think it's talking more that maybe that's where the sadomasochists uh, in the original title came from oh um for the people who get pleasure from pain um that's kind of how i always sort of read it yes you're right they don't focus they don't, at least the Cenobites never focus on the pleasure yeah, that I can see. Right. Um, but <laughs> exactly. they, they're, I think they're talking about those because perhaps they themselves have, um, uh, you know, taken pleasure from pain. Yeah. They and, enjoy, they enjoy the suffering. There's that scene, uh, where Pinhead says to, to, uh, to Kirstie's like, um, 
no tears. It's a waste of good suffering, you know? And it's like, right. Right. You know, don't, don't, don't cry from the suffering. The suffering's the great, the good thing. That's the, that's the good stuff. <laughs> well, and I don't know how much you got, cause I think if you just go on the text of the movie, mm-hmm. it's difficult to get this. I mean, you get like what you said, Jay, that Frank was a hellraiser and he's a hellion who, you know, always causing trouble for people. And, but, in the source material and if you hear barker talk about the character this is a guy who has scoured the planet trying to find how to fulfill his depraved libido as much as humanly possible mm-hmm. and in all possible ways and he feels like he's tapped out all of the creative ways to do that and so he's now come to this place where he's he's studied all i believe it's in the hellbound heart it's something to the effect of all that mankind has knows about uh, the Lamont configuration or whatever. It's the full name of the uh, Frenchman who created it. But, it, you know, that that Frank knows because he studied up on it. So he knows potentially that it's going to bring forth these beings. And he knows that they're going to do something potentially bad to him. But I think within that, he it's that like the idea that the exquisite from the exquisite pain comes this intense moment of pleasure and release. It's sort of how, you know, they used to, hopefully I'm not going to get you an e-tag on this, but, uh, you know, in, in, if you read, you know, literature and in from, from what they would refer to, like the little death is referring to an orgasm essentially. So mm-hmm. the idea of comparing that to death and the idea that, you know, this, for this gentleman, <laughs> I don't know why I use that word very loosely. Uh, he, <laughs> uh, you know, his, in his mind, in, 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 in his way of viewing things, that ext- even though it'll be extreme pain, because of that, the release, the 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 culmination of it all will be a a, a moment of pleasure unparalleled. So mm-hmm. that is the we, thought process, I think. Now, see, that's super interesting to me because two things. So the, I'm going to talk about literal. Um, like sexual pleasure in a second. So look Yay. forward to look forward to that. But but before we get to that, um <laughs> I'm just but uh when there there are like religious texts, for example, um those with which I am familiar <laughs> that that say that um you know you know there must it must needs be that there's an opposition in all things and we have to have um pain to understand the pleasure and vice versa right yeah. and, and, and no dark without the light i mean that's what that's what mm-hmm. they kind of said in that opening quote too it's like yeah 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 so you know. i mean that's cool because that's you know because that's in here i'm like whoa this is uh i mean i mean in, in terms of my understanding of what what i believe to be like you know how how things are made how things work it's like well that rings true to me so that's a little freaky to see it in this context but but no i guess um in my my extracurricular reading about this this film as i was studying up about it i guess clive barker had a, a lot more like severe and steamy love scenes between frank and julia oh yeah but but the mpaa you know they they the they wanted those out, but they were okay with more like, you know, Jay, switchblade would you do me stuff. The honor? Would you do me the honor of letting me read Mr. Barker's quote? Please do. Please. As presented in Wikipedia. It's hilarious. Okay. An interview for uh, Samhain. Is that, is, 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 how do you pronounce that? The, because uh, I know it. You that's, know, that's how I say it. It's okay. It's Samhain magazine in July, 1987. Barker mentioned some problems that censors had with more erotic scenes in the movie. And this is Barker. 
Well, we did have a slight problem with the eroticism. I shot a much hotter flashback sequence than they would allow us to cut in. Mine was more explicit and less violent. They wanted to substitute one kind of undertow for another. I had a much more explicit sexual encounter between Frank and Julia, but they said, no, let's take out the sodomy and put in the flick knife. <laughs> and, then, and then there's there, there's another there's another um uh, there's more feedback on that about like uh like like two oh, the spanking two, yeah yeah spanking and the thrusting yeah go yes. go go into that oh um, you want to go for that one too okay. yeah let's just okay so put it all Barker, out there Barker again Barker again apparently the Julia and Frank scene was initially a lot more explicit we did a version of the scene which had some spanking in it and the MPA was not very appreciative of that. <laughs> Lord knows where the spanking footage is. Somebody has it somewhere. The MPAA told me I was allowed two consecutive buttock thrusts from Frank, but three is deemed obscene. <laughs> I just want to know. I just I want to be there at the meeting. I want to be a fly on the wall of the MPA where these folks are sitting around. Going, okay, you thrust two times, but that third one. That's we got. It's crossing the line. If, it's just it's, right. it's a bridge too far. So it, the third one is where I started to feel something. So I we got to get rid of that. That's, that's right. what it is. Got it. If the listeners haven't seen uh, the documentary, this film is not yet rated. If, if you want to explore more of this arbitrary um, <laughs> classification, then that that's an interesting documentary. But um, yeah. but I just want to know what's wrong with spanking, Josh. Hmm. What's wrong with spanking, Josh? I'm not, I'm not responding to this, Jay. <laughs> I will not respond to this line of questioning. I'm he does not support corporal punishment. Okay, Jay. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just asking. Okay, fair enough. Um, all right, you guys are awesome. I think the MPAA said if you get rid of the spanking, we'll give you a few more fish hooks coming out of the wall. Ah, mm-hmm. it's weird. It's weird. They're okay with a flick of a knife. Right, right, but right. Not sodomy. That's apparently the thing. So I got a lot of random thoughts about this, but I don't want to like harass you guys. Do you, do you do you have anything you want to say, Dave, before I start asking you guys weird questions? Oh boy, you mean what do you mean start? <laughs> no, uh, uh, no, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'll, I'll I'm I'm anxious uh, to see where you're about to go. Okay, well, I mean, there are there. Should we give like content warning? Are there children listening to the show? That yeah, right, know? right. It, it's so funny that you say that actually, because um, we got we got the most amazing, and I'll, I'll, we'll talk more about this later. But I just want to do a little excerpt. There's a new listener from Tooele, Utah, and I love I love the name. It's Money on a Bike. Money on a Bike. Okay, and this listener says this podcast will turn casual horror fans into hardcore fans. Um, let me see that. That's not the part I wanted to read, but I, I like that too. He says, this is the most family friendly podcast of the most unfamily friendly subject matter. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> that's yeah, true. It's like the exact opposite of movie podcast weekly. Exactly. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> it really is. Okay. That's, that's, that's great. So now you're going to turn him, turn this new listener off. Is that what it is? No, no I, I hope not. I hope he stays with us. Um, okay, I got to tell you, there. I, this is a, the hugest sidetrack. In Twilla, Utah, mm-hmm. there's a jail, a, a now defunct like prison that is there. I think it's actually the Twilla County Sheriff's Office, but it's used for a lot of film productions, and I've filmed in there myself like two or three times. That thing is haunted, and when you go in there, the guards will tell you like, "We don't go down here by ourselves." So if you 
need to go down into this section, like make sure someone's with you and make sure this door stays open. And I'm like, okay. Whoa. <laughs> is that for, Whoa. is that just for tourism purposes though? Or do you, do you believe they really no, feel that this way? This was not like a tour. This was, I was working there. That's what I was going to say. Video. Yeah. And he yeah. told, he warned me like, I don't go down here. If you are going to go down here, put a weight in front of the door so it can't close and go with another person. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. Next, the next meetup in Utah when Dave and Joel come back, let's do an HMP dead serious challenge, and we're gonna watch something down in there. How about that? I would, Oof. I would do it. I would do it. I would do it. Let's let's there. let's do this. <laughs> let's do Sesh, it. Session nine. We watch session nine. Yes. On a nineteen inch <laughs> oh, wow. Zenith TV. Bring it. Like just just like just a crappy old TV sitting on a chair, <laughs> and and we just and we just watch it in the dark. In that area. And I it's will good. lock you guys in at night and come and unlock the door in the morning. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. And, and I'll and I'll keep the car running. <laughs> uh, so oh, I, I accept them in the slasher movie. I'm dead first reel. I mean, I got no chance. Yeah, because you're the. I'm, I'm, too, I'm a smart ass. Yeah, I'll just be dead. Exactly. Yeah, that I'm is Shelley. what I'm basically. Shelly is where, where I'm going with it. That's what we have. <laughs> so. Um, okay, there's a moment in this film, as, as well written and as creative, I mean, I really uh, love and appreciate this film, but there's one moment at the beginning when they first move into the house, and there's a there's a telephone ringing, okay? And, and the character goes, what the hell is that? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Uh, uh, a phone. The assumption is that that no one's lived in the house for ten years, so why is the phone hooked up? And then who's right. calling? And then he. But the weird thing is, he answers the phone. Who is this? You know. <laughs> and then it's his daughter. Like, oh hi, dad. And then he doesn't have any questions. Like, how did you get this number? How did you know this number was in order? Like, what? Like, for what? <laughs> You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, my understanding was that the, the, this seems it appears to have been their family home, like when they were younger kids, these brothers. Right. And and um, I think maybe she she knew of them moving back into it. That was my assumption. Sure. But still, it's just weird that that was the reaction to the phone call. Anyways, m- moving on. Um, I just want to say this is. Um, a fairly gross film. I don't gross out easily and I don't get like sick to my stomach or anything. But let me just say, it's very difficult to watch this film and eat pizza. Um, <laughs> because oh, because I, I had to, uh, I had a couple of, it's just weird. I had some pizza sessions during this and it was, it was not, not a good experience. What, what about a good blood pudding? Would you say that's a, an easier... <laughs> Yeah, I, I was offered ribs about uh, 15 minutes into the movie, and I'm just like, there's no way I'm going to be able to eat those. I, I'm just going to pass to begin with. Right. Right off the bat. Yeah, seriously. So, okay, here's something interesting since we were talking about the religious aspects. I, I think I, I love this whole concept in this film where, um, you know, he had to take life basically from others. I mean, it's kind of got that a little bit of a vampiric angle. It's got a let the right one in angle where you have to like sustain this loved one. I mean, what if you had to to kill in order to revive or keep your loved one alive? I mean, I think that's um, pretty interesting. And the more I thought about it, Frank is kind of, he has this antichrist type of, um, I, I don't know, I guess, a theme or whatever, because like, you know, in, in Judeo-Christian 
in that story, Christ sacrificed his body in order to save others so that others could live. Whereas Frank has like an antichrist approach where he takes others' bodies as sacrifices in order for him to live. And and that that again just speaks to I think the the evil <laughs> that's underlying in this film. Right. Definitely. It's kind of interesting. Um, what, what about um I mean did did you guys feel like did you feel like it was unnatural or bizarre that that she was um persuaded or led to to kill for Frank? I mean, I do you guys buy that? I, you know, I, I, I did because of what we see with the character, the way she's sort of interacting with her husband. She clearly fell for this, for Frank. I mean, she clearly was just totally into him, even knowing how he was. And she was bored um, with she was bored with her husband and, and the, the, the thought that she could now live a, a more exciting life with Frank, I think was appealing to her, uh, to the point that, and she was a little reluctant at first and, and still didn't want to go to certain areas that Frank wanted to take things, but eventually gave in because she, she was thinking, okay, my, my life will improve. I, I don't like my life now. I, I want this. So, there's a there's a an an evil trait in her that I, that at the very least Frank had a, um uh, had a sort of drawn out of her, and I think that that um is what was driving a lot of her actions. Just mm-hmm. the thought of yes, under normal circumstances I would never do this, but this is Frank, and I'm not happy. So. You know what it reminded me of? It, well, first of all, it feels like kind of a reverse on the classic film noir trope where the femme fatale kind of lures the guy to kill right. for her. Mm-hmm. But it also really seems like a real life abusive relationship kind of thing. You see this a lot, like a, a woman who's been abused by a guy, but kind of gets a Stockholm syndrome thing going where she's willing to kind of do whatever he says, even though it's such an unhealthy relationship. You know, I mean, maybe it's just how it's depicted in movies, but you definitely see this in a lot of like serial killer movies and the woman who's with the guy, you know, is kind of the one who maybe doesn't want to really go along with what the plan is, but she's doing it because she's in love with the guy and she thinks that she can please him by doing this awful stuff that he's doing. A Perfect Getaway, which we reviewed recently on our summer vacation horror is a film like that. I think about Frighteners, the Peter Jackson film. Um, my mind also kind of just goes to like the Killing Fields and um, some other things like that. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I I didn't think about it from that angle, but I like that. Um, yeah. And speaking of the killings, there's just one thing I wanted to comment on. When so I don't know what it is, but anytime you've got a like a kill with a claw hammer in a horror film, I mean that is. That is seriously. Uh, I agree. So upsetting. That, it, that bothers me more. That, <laughs> that gets to me. And that and a baseball bat with nails driven into it. Oh, are yeah. Probably the two that are the most disturbing. That would be an awful way to go. But yeah, I mean, that's this gives a whole new meaning to the phrase hammer horror. Right, Dave? 
<laughs> just kidding. Come on. Uh, I, I, I thought you were going to say hammer time, so I don't know which joke would have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it is it is hammer horror. Like when people are getting killed with a hammer, that's freaky. That, that that's, is true. And what, what it, and hey, just, finally a follow-up to pig-headed horror. Jay, I think you found it. Uh, <laughs> hammer horror. Here we go. <laughs> Movies feature. You know it. You know we should. Does anybody? Go ahead, Joel. Sorry. No, no. I, I, yeah, I was just gonna say just the the detail though of when she she hits. I think it's the first. Stop. Well, hammer time. <laughs> nice well done beautiful. that was beautiful <laughs> nah. I, you got me too I was like what would I, did I do something what happened did I something in the, oh, <laughs> sorry that was, no, no that was beautiful I, I could not have done it better myself that's awesome no the, the detail of the first death the first kill that she has where she's obviously got a lot more trepidation and then she gets into it the, when she hits him in the mouth and how I mean they obviously cut it down for the MPAA but just that level, like just like torn his lip, and it's just, it's just uh, it's a subtle thing, but it's really grisly. I mean, it's just it's yeah, it, it's not just like okay, she hit him in the head. There's right. some blood. It's just that level of a I've, she's busted out teeth. She's yeah, it's just it it adds a level of just uh, to the whole. And again, as you're watching the the continuation of that with the multiple victims, it's that first one was very difficult for her. Um, and, and that's why she was just sort of swinging wildly to get it done. And then you see her almost methodical, almost mm -hmm. like, okay, now I've got this down to a science Yeah. Mm -hmm. as, as it went from there. Um, but no, I agree with you. That first one is, is tough to watch. And, and plus the fact that Frank tells her, look away, don't look at this. Don't yeah. look I thought away. that was, I thought that was, yeah, I thought that was interesting because here's a guy who was obviously willing to go to any extreme. Was he protecting her? Was he thinking it made him look? Yeah. You uh, know, look, look uh, weaker doing uh, it's, I, it was very interesting for him to say, don't watch this. Cause that's not, that's not anything you got from his character before that he was, he would ever try to protect anybody from any sort of anything. I read it as a self-consciousness because in the beginning when, when he's first all bloody looking the, in the very beginning there's he even says don't look at me and then I, I feel like he, he just didn't want to ruin that attraction it, she it, had. It would have to be. Yeah, it would have to be something with him where he, he felt that this is not showing me at my best even though I'm <laughs> really just walk, walking bloody tissue right now. Right. Uh, this still won't look good. So yeah. And I think that you you know we really should point out that Oliver Smith plays Frank in all of those makeups. So it's a different actor than playing Frank in the, in the flesh, so to speak. Mm, wait, wait, right. so Sean Chapman plays Frank, good looking guy. I, I, I get the charisma angle with him, but to me, it's Oliver Smith's performance. It's sort of like Robert England behind all that makeup with Freddie. It, it, that's where we get you know even more of of frank as you know it just just his evolve i guess evolving would be the right way of saying from from that muck to what he becomes and mm. you know it, it, they interview uh, and i'll we can go into it a little bit more if you want to jay but go the for it go documentary for it that i mentioned er, uh, to, to you before we start recording it's called uh, it's on shutter for anybody out there who has uh, shutter uh, through amazon uh, it's called leviathan the story of hellraiser part one it's about an hour and a half long it's a behind the scenes making of Hellraiser and it's great. It's got you know Doug Bradley in it, Andrew Robinson, Claire Higgins, they're on it, Bob Keen, the effects guy. I mean all the all the different effects folks, makeup folks. Uh 
it's great, except that it doesn't have any Clyde Barker, but they do talk about him a lot, but they interview Oliver Smith in it quite a bit. And it's just interesting for, you know, to t- for him to talk about what he went through because they, at certain points had him covered from head to toe in mm. prosthetics, you know, and makeup. So this guy, they, they said the, one of the makeup artists said, you know, this, this fellow was willing to be completely naked and vulnerable and just covered in this stuff for hours on end and, and never, you know, I get the vibe, never complained, just, just did his bit, but it, but just the fact that he was able to act. And I thought very effectively mm-hmm. through oh, yeah. that, because that's, I mean, that, that, you know, acting is a, is a hard enough challenge as it is, but to, to be able to act with that much covering you and that much, you know, through that kind of makeup, especially his, because even with Freddie, Robert England, and, you know, especially as that character progresses through the series, you know, they, they really did a great job of fitting that to England's face. So you could get a lot of England through that. I feel like with the Frank character, you don't, it, it's, it's messier and it's uh, denser. So you don't get as much. And obviously we, you're missing, you know, a lot of the features that you might be able to get a lot of the expression, but yet it's still in the eyes and just the demeanor and, and the way he, you know, conveys yeah. like what you guys were talking about. You know, don't look at me and the, and the voice he does. His voice is great. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I'm sure if you listen to them back to back, they probably sound nothing alike, but his voice in that form is so uh, it's, it's very just effective. It's, it's got that um, just that rich, like almost like a raspy quality to it, which, you know, fits with where he is, you know, in his change. Right. But, right. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I think that I want to make sure that, Oliver Smith, because I feel like everybody will think Frank when they see him in his human form. That's oh, that's who the same actor. But no, it's a totally different guy through the bulk of the movie. Now, well, and also Andrew Robinson plays Frank a little bit oh, as yeah, well. That's true. Once yeah. He puts yes. Larry's face yes. on. So yes, that's really right. three performances pulling off this one character. And I feel like they do it pretty seamlessly. I think the three mm-hmm. of them work really well together. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Now, but you- I agree with you. Oliver Smith is fantastic, and he's it's interesting because he's able to pull off powerful and also um what is what is the word vulnerable uh, vulnerable simultaneously yeah. right yeah. Yes. because when he's interacting right. with especially julia and maybe this goes back to the kind of abusive relationship thing we were talking about a minute ago it's he feels so powerful he feels like there's nothing that you know that she can do to kind of uh, break the spell basically anything he wants her to do she's going to do for him but then yet, as soon as he in, he is confronted by Kirstie, like she can handle him like she's not, you know, she she can physically handle her, herself against him in a way that kind of I didn't expect because I, I kind of thought, oh, he's more powerful than this because he's exuding so much charisma, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yep. So I was going to ask you, Josh, and, and Joel's a filmmaker, too, so maybe both of you would know the answer to this. Do we, do we think that they used Oliver Smith like a secondary actor because um, it takes so long to get him into makeup and maybe they needed to do other shots with Frank and his regular skin? Like why, why would they cast the, the two parts there? I would be surprised if that was the reason. I would think it would be more of a, that Oliver Smith was a makeup performer type person mm. you know we get that okay. with um so many people who perform in special effects makeup and one thing that they often look for is someone who's really slim 
because when they build up special effects makeup on top of the body, it makes their head bigger. It makes them look bulkier. So if you find someone with really small natural features and, you know, a really thin body, then you can add more blood and gore and sinew on top of that without them looking overly bulky. That would be my guess from just like a technical point of view. But I say that knowing nothing about the specifics of this production. And I think you're pretty much right on. As I recall from the documentary, they get it. I don't remember how much Smith had done before this, though. I think he had done some. It may have been with, I don't know, because I know Barker was involved with a theater group. And so I don't remember if that was their connection or if they brought him in from some outside third party connection. I don't remember if that was the case, but I think a lot of it came down to his size and yeah. and the fact that he was able to pull off because it's a very physical performance and, and you know, right. the guy shot Chapman looks like he's in great shape, but it's a whole other level. It's, you know, you have to be almost like an Olympic Olympic gymnast, I think, to be able to endure what one of those, one of those actors endures. Wow. I think Doug Jones, you know, yeah, like that's, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Exactly oh, yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah. That's a great example. Okay. That makes sense. Um, speaking of actors appearances, did anybody else feel like Julia, does does she and of course the actress name is uh, Claire Higgins? Does she remind you of uh, Jodie Foster? I was thinking more of uh, Meg. Uh, well, actually, Meg Foster. Speaking of Foster, the uh, the one from <laughs> they they live the because a little bit because mm-hmm. the eyes maybe. Uh, okay, uh-huh. interesting. But but not yeah. No, I didn't get a Jodie Foster vibe. Okay, fine. Yeah, I didn't either. Just you, Jay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, props to, I really like this little exchange. Like, you know, after she had killed, like she's seen Frank and she's done some killing. She comes downstairs and she's watching, Um, her husband's watching boxing on TV or something. And he goes to shut it off because he's like, and she's like, ah, it's fine. You can leave it. And he's like, I thought this made you sick. And she says, I've seen worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah. oh, that's really good. It's the little things, guys, you know. But, but even in that scene, it's the little looks that she gives to him as well, mm-hmm. you know, where she's just sort of looking at him and, and you, you definitely see just in those looks that as to why she's going with Frank, there's just a, almost a disdain, you know, like a, like a, not a hatred, but a, just what have you done to my life? I, I could have, you know, I, I feel like it's going nowhere sort of thing. Their scenes together are very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost every single one of the scenes of the two of them together. You know, you have Andrew Robinson going through the motions of being a loving husband, and you have her just really not having any of it, being polite, trying, but but just just it's her, the 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 feeling is not there. Yeah, it's almost like their chemistry is no chemistry. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and the, like the dinner scene, you remember when they're there, everyone's getting. When she's like, "Oh, I need to go to bed." She gets up, she's giving everyone a hug and kiss, and then she gets near her husband, but pauses, looks at him, and then and just walks away. Yeah, look, and then just starts to walk away. But she even then pauses again at the door. She does a slight little look over her shoulder, and then goes to the door because she's basically <laughs> right. you know, planning. I, I think I believe at that point she's very much aware of Frank. So. um you know, I, 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 well, at that point she was right. Wasn't that, are we still, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. That yeah. was part of the reason she was going upstairs. That, yeah. yeah. So that, so she's, you know, pausing, like there's, there's almost like a sense of still a sense of like loyalty for lack of a better way, word, you know, to her husband that she's thinking, you know, like what I'm doing is right, but she's still going to go through it. She's still going to go through. And I really feel like not enough can be said 
for Claire Higgins' performance because mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. you know, the way she go, she goes from this person who, yeah, you know, like you said, the very first kill is is very all, all over the place, and and she's profoundly disturbed to do it. But there's a there comes a moment where you see a shift in her and in her eyes of just the pleasure she's getting out of it. That it's not just that at this, I think at that point that she's just killing for Frank, she's killing for herself. And, mm, and, yeah. and ultimately she has all that hesitation about him killing her husband. But it's, it's interesting how we get that training. Like we actually don't see that take place, right? We don't see him actually mm -hmm. kill his brother. It just, right. it just goes right to, you know, she, her, her, she's in the mirror and, and, and doing her thing and and then he's in the doorway and we can surmise what's happened but right. we never saw it yes that's true um so just a couple more things and i'm i apologize for how random i am but but you you guys are doing great at staying on track but um i think that this might be not just the first horror film in history to do this but I think the first film ever in history to do this, 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 this horror film has a jump scare that uses Jesus for the scare. I mean, I mean that, that statue comes out and I'm like, wow. I mean, and, and that was like another sense of, you know, as a person who is a Christian, um, that was another sense of this movie, like really pushing back against against all of that stuff. And then at the end, the, like the key gross out, creepy scene when like his face is being stretched out to the sides and he says, Jesus wept. I mean, that, that bugs me on so many levels, but it's very can I, can effective. I real quick? I don't know if you, please. And, and Dave, if you know the story, you know, I will definitely happily step back so that you could share it. But do you know Andrew Robinson's take on that line? Did, did, no, mm -mm. Tell no, it. I have not. So I'd like to hear it. Okay, so in the documentary, he taught they have him on there, and he talks about that the original line, and I and I realize that you try not to go for the explicit tag, so I will censor myself. Uh, Jay is was he as he's got his face stretched and he's he's looking at Kirsty. He says "f you," and which he even he goes, I, I just told Clive, he's like that's so pedestrian. <laughs> it's just you know, it's just such a okay. I say yeah. that. And and he said, so I just decided, he goes, one of my favorite, favorite lines just in general is just to say, Jesus wept. And he goes, and Clive went nuts. Like he just loved it because obviously there's a lot of, you know, religious imagery and symbolism throughout the film. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's just, it, cause it says nothing in a way, but it says a lot, but you're, you know, it's just, cause it's almost a, it's almost like a very enigmatic thing to end on that, that cause he, and he looks like, in that moment, he's getting the pleasure he was hoping from all the pain, too. If you really watch it, he licks his lips and he's just got this look on his face. And then, right. you know, yeah. snap, crack, yeah. a pop. Yeah. yeah, it's almost as if he reached that uh, that planes, uh, plane yes. pain slash pleasure uh, plateau. Yeah. Yeah, that that scene there uh, really s disturbs me. And, and that's the thing about this film. I don't feel like... I mean, if I had watched this as like a, a a younger kid, I mean, I think I ended up seeing it a couple years after it had been released. But if I had watched it as like a little kid, of course, I'd be scared to death. But just as an adult, I don't find it scary as much as I find it disturbing. It's like yes. it's really unsettling. It, yes. it, it kind of um, sits in. It's like after you McDonald's and um, 
and you're like, I shouldn't have done that. That's a, it sticks with you and makes your body feel bad. That's what this movie does to me. But in it, you know, and it's a good thing because so watching a man pulled apart by the from demons from hell is the equivalent of eating a Big Mac. Well, yeah, chicken McNuggets probably. Yeah, <laughs> fillet of fish. Come on, guys. the way you oh, feel. That's true. The McRib. Oh, boy. Actually, the McRib. Oh, gross. <laughs> that is super gross. So that big weird scorpion like bug monster that chases her down the uh, hall that, that is that is i believe they call him is it the is it engineer engineer i was going to ask you if that's if that is the engineer because yes that is the engineer though you wouldn't know it unless you researched and <laughs> yeah i don't think they ever referred to him i think they the the, yeah, the cenobites say is they say what you know the engineer they talk about it and i know it's in the in the book as well but like just from watching the movie, I feel like you may not get that. that well, that's who that is. and I can't see that dude uh, using a protractor or a compass or anything. So like, exactly. <laughs> I'm just saying, Disturbed not easily. Yeah. I thought it was because he was like looked like he was driving a train down a tunnel, a, t- a train of flush. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that could be it. Josh is such an artist. That's a really good idea, Josh. What about this, guys? Did you feel like at the end when she uses the Marchand's box? in order to defeat the Cenobites. Did you feel like that was a little bit of like a deus ex machina there? Like, it's like, it's just like, Hey, I'll do the Rubik's cube again. And, and like, I think, I think the fact that she would be able to even remotely figure it out. Cause it's apparently this extraordinarily complex configuration is, I think they established the box well enough to it, for its presence to be there and it to be used as the weapon of choice to make sense. And so it's not like, oh, gee, I found this box in the in the last 10 minutes and I'm going to use it to kill the bad guys. It's, you know, it's a thing that was obviously present from the beginning. It's what summons them. It presumably is what gets rid of them. Right. I get that. I think where I would argue it, it is what the deus ex machina is the fact that she, you know, very easily is pushing this thing back together again. And what's and what's truly ironic about this series is that still probably the best use of it. I mean, there are some of the later films. I mean, guys are passing it by on the street and pick it up and figure it out. I mean, it, it's all, it's almost like this is the easiest puzzle box in the world. Yeah. And, in later films. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's really not supposed to be. It's supposed to be the most complex. Mm-hmm. But it's, and again, in this movie, they handle it better than they did in the other movies. And I don't necessarily disagree with you, Jay. I agree with you. And even the first time I saw it, I said, wow, she kind of figured that out pretty quick. <laughs> um, but in later movies, that is uh, even it gets even worse. Well, and, and for all the effects, which are praiseworthy and great. I mean, this is a very artistic film. I don't feel like I've I've, um, you know, emphasized that enough about how much artistry is in this. But when when she does conquer them and you've got those like <laughs> those little like uh, yellow, well, what would you refer to those yellow effects they do? Th- those are a little the dated visual effects, the sort of the 1987 visual effects. Yeah, 1987. Yeah, exactly. yeah. They're a little dated by now, um, but that's OK. I mean, I get it. It's it's you know, the other stuff is so great. So I can put up with that. That's the imagery I imagine whenever I hear the Dr. Shock sound effect. Same. Agreed. I do too. <laughs> I do too. That is great. Um, What about, okay, so one other last little nitpick and then we can probably wrap this up pretty soon. The The boyfriend, okay, when the boyfriend arrives at the house that she's battling Cenobites and stuff, mm-hmm. d- does anybody else think, okay, that dude 
when he showed up there with all these freaks that she's fighting, I mean, he never acts incredulous or surprised or says like, you know, <laughs> WTF. Like he doesn't. It's just like this is like babysitting or something. And well, I the think kids part are of it, a part of it is that the house is falling down around him. Yes. I don't know that so he really I think he's reacting clear, more to that. Yeah, I don't know that he ever it, sees it a almost, clear shot of them. Mm. No, he he sees the one I think that was sort of coming after him. But when you're trying to get out of out of a house that's falling all around you, you're not really going to pause and ask questions. Okay. So I think that's how I always kind of read more. Yeah. That's how I sort of looked at that scene. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, I'll stop being nitpicky. But anyways, well, I will say to your nit to your nitpicks, though, Jay, mm-hmm. is the fact that this is not, I think, a, a really a, a, the movie's fault, per se. But I guess I don't know if it was New World, presumably you know, producers, powers that be decided that I believe they shot this movie in England, mostly, if not all uh, of it. And most of the actors in it are English as in as in like uh, British. And then so they have accents and i don't know if you picked up on the fact that very few of them do other than julia and so like first is i think the one guy she picks i maybe the first guy she picks up he has an accent they left his but then the vast majority of people there don't have accents so they actually dubbed over mm-hmm. most of the actors uh, in this film to give them to because i guess the theory was well we never necessarily say it is hap- taking place in England. Therefore, it could be, you know, we'd rather it be taking place in the U.S. So let's go ahead and keep it as it's not a script. Because I remember always, every time I've watched this movie, I'm always like, where the hell is this taking place? Like it's, and it's not in that ambiguous sort of like, oh, any town in America. It just, it doesn't feel, it feels like that is a, a thing, something they just couldn't make their mind up on, <laughs> on some level. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it ultimately, I think it's supposed to be England. Uh, they make the Brooklyn comment a couple of times that they came from Brooklyn, but mm-hmm. uh, that that was uh, it's it, so that is one of those things that's always uh, I found a little I mean for what it is a little off putting because I think yeah. as as a result some of the performances and things kind of play a little weird because you know essentially it's you know ADR they're being the voices are just maybe not yeah you know, <laughs> I would presume they just got different actors to do those voices right I don't know why I just assumed it was New Jersey but in my mind <laughs> that's where they were yeah, yeah. and and I and I thought it was Tooele. Tooele, Utah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> All right. Uh, is that, so you guys, uh, let's wrap this up and give our final thoughts and ratings. And um, let's start off with Gilman Joel. What do you say about Hellraiser from 1987? Well, one thing I say is because you brought up the imagination in this movie. So I very quickly, uh, this is a tradition carried over from Universal Monsters cast. Uh, I would always try to find like, a, like if I could find one, an old review for some of the movies that we covered. You guys remember yeah. doing that? Okay. <laughs> retro review from oh, the yes, retro yes. movie. Yes, yes, yeah, that, that's the theory. Um, but I also did this, you know, just to uh, put, give a little jabbing uh, Jay's is, way with it. Yeah, I was going to say, is, is this quote happened to be from somebody who's known for thumbs up, thumbs down? Um, yes, you could say that. Uh, so Roger <laughs> okay. Ebert in uh, September 18th, yeah. 1987, uh, reviewed Hellraiser. <clears throat> Now, uh, many of you out there may be aware that Ebert, of course, a very famous film critic, was a little hit and miss on the horror genre. Would, would everybody say that's a fair, fair? Uh, he didn't necessarily love many of the of the '80s films that we. No, know. he he didn't, and he almost always pointed out how he did like Halloween. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, he loved Halloween. And for some reason, Go Fig loved Last House on the Left, although we can always chalk it up to he thought it was Ingmar Bergman's Virgin Spring and that right. gave him the pretentious, you know, artsy fartsy brownie points. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying, he gives that movie a pass. But this is what he said about Hellraiser, which not only did he give not one out of four, he gave it half a star. <laughs> he didn't even give it one star, well, half a star. I'm not going to read the whole review. I, I won't do that to you, Jay. He starts it off with the quote that is very famous, which is, I have seen the future of the horror genre, and his name is Clive Barker. That is a Stephen King quote. So that's how he starts this review with the following line. Now, there's a blurb Stephen King should have written under one of his pen names. And then (laughs) I've got to now scroll down to the last paragraph (laughs) with uh, Mr. Ebert's words. Who goes to see movies like this? What do they get out of them? I like good horror movies because I enjoy being surprised and sometimes even moved. But there are no surprises in Hellraiser only a dreary series of scenes that repeat each other. What fun is it watching the movie mark time until the characters discover the obvious? This is a movie without wit, style, or reason, and the true horror is that actors were made to portray and technicians to realize it's bankruptcy of imagination. Maybe Stephen King was thinking of a different Clive Barker. Wait well, a, a second. Wait, wait, wait. King <laughs> was referring to Barker as the as an author, I think, when that quote was taken, so there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the bankruptcy of imagination, I mean, I get that Ebert's going to rip on something like I get it. But the I, I think that's like, come on, dude. Really? He, I mean, I, you got to admit, I mean, you may have hated it, but it's got a lot of imagination. I, <laughs> I guarantee know. he slept during that screening. I bet you. I think you're right, too. <laughs> he he fell asleep during the screening and only woke up in certain parts. And he's like, oh, that was boring. I, I guarantee <laughs> it. I, I know it. I know it for or sure. Or he just left before the one hour mark and never saw the Cenobites. <laughs> yeah. Or something. Yeah, yeah, or something. Because think about 1987 horror and how unique they were as characters. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it was, I don't know. I just, I find that to be a stretch. If it's, and in no point in the rest of the review does he say, you know, I'll give it to Mr. Barker that you know, the creativity of the Cenobites. Well, I mean, he makes, I think, a reference to them, but he never, you know, like, Gives the guy, throws a guy a bone or anything. I mean, there's no, and I'm thinking, ah, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, that was, uh, that was Mr. Ebert's review from 1987. Yes. But I am not giving it half a star, Jay. I refuse. Well, that that's uh, good. Yes. I will say I, I fluctuate. I feel like this viewing, it's a nine for me. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's an 8.5. Like, I feel like if I haven't watched it in years, I'd be like, yeah, I remember really liking Hellraiser. It's a good movie. 8.5. But I think a nine. It's a, it's a solid nine. It's not a perfect movie. Uh, but it is a, I feel like it's a classic and it's interesting because I don't think it's a classic of example of eighties horror. Like so many movies like, Oh yeah, Friday 13th and your nightmare. Knows, that's eighties horror, you know, or this is a seventies horror. You know, <laughs> this it's weird. Hellraiser. I often will forget came out in the eighties. Like there's something about it that is, I don't know if it's more universal. I don't know what it is about it, but I'll sometimes have to take a moment to go, okay, wasn't well, the nineties. I know that, but yeah, it was okay. It was the eighties. So, uh, but yeah, I think it's a solid nine. And uh, I recommend any horror fan, if you haven't seen it, um, you know, make sure you get a, a, a nice uh, like stack of McRib sandwiches, uh, some Joel <laughs> Cola oh. <laughs> and go to town with Hellraiser. Yikes. OK, so Joel says uh, a nine. And, and did you so this is a buy then for people or? A- oh, oh, yeah, I would say this is this is one to uh, have in your collection. Now, I could understand why if like someone like Josh is saying, you know, uh, you know, I, I appreciate it for what it is. They they may not want to, but it's certainly a, a strong, strong rental recommendation. But I feel like uh, it's a, a fan who's like a pleatist that wants to like get all the iconic figures of, of horror, especially horror franchises in their collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't necessarily say this for all the subsequent films, but for this one, yes, I, I think it's an owner. 
Okay, gotcha. Nine out of ten, buy it. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I'm right there with you. Actually, uh, this is a nine out of ten for me as well. I call it a, I think it's a must see for um, any horror fan at least once. But yeah, it's definitely a buy. I own it, and I think the two things that I appreciate most is that it actually, it's a horror film that has a genuine story. I mean, it actually has a a very intriguing story in this one. I, I love that. There, there are motivations, there's reasons that things are happening, and it's it's excellent. And I also love the the amount of creativity and the artistry. I mean, I feel like when you watch this film, if it's your first time watching it, you're seeing things that you have not seen before. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that's really valuable. So, 9 out of 10 for me, must see, buy it. What do you say, Wolfman Josh? Well, um... <laughs> Let me start by really quickly giving two bits of trivia because we know that some of the biggest filmmakers of our day are big horror fans, even if they don't necessarily work in the genre. We saw J.J. Abrams was a huge fan of Phantasm and remastered that film digitally recently, as well as named Captain Phasma, uh, the silver-plated stormtrooper leader after the Phantasm films. Um here again, we, you know, we see Claire Higgins, you know, she makes a brief appearance in Ready Player One, which is a veritable uh, treasure trove of Easter eggs from 80s cinema. So I think that could not have been by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead, has also played the Emperor in uh, the Star Wars video games. He's the voice of the Emperor. So I think that that's fun to just see those um, little pop culture crossovers um back to this movie i get the artistry and and i get the creativity and i'm with you guys 100 on all of that but for me i just can't like be untrue to the to, to my truth which is i don't like it still like i just don't like this movie <laughs> so uh-huh. i mean i i think objectively like I can easily give this film a seven and feel great about that. I could even go higher, but I do try to kind of like, you know, keep all of my ratings in mind a little bit when I'm rating films. And so if I'm looking at this in the spectrum of of cinema, like I'm very comfortable giving this one a seven, but from a recommendation point of view, like I'm almost a skip it. Like I'm, 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 I'm going to give it a low priority rental because it is a horror classic and I think, you know, there are certain horror fans who just want to see everything at least once. Um, but for me, I think if you have some of my uh, similar misgivings about the elements in the film, if if you like me, don't like that. Too. Yes, like I know this film and, and the second film were both made in the 80s because I remember seeing them in video stores in the 80s. But I do think of the Hellraiser franchise as a 90s franchise in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of when it was most in my per, like in my field of vision. And so um, I don't remember where I was going with that, guys. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I you, you, you talked say. about before about the fact that a lot of stuff from the 90s just. Yeah, this just kind of fits yeah. into that into that tone and aesthetic and style of movies that I just don't really enjoy. It just don't really appeal to me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm going to give this one a 
seven and call it a low priority rental. Okay. You got it. Thank you, Josh. And and what about you, Dr. Shock? Bring it home. All right. Well, it is my top in my top five horror movies. Um, I will give it a 10 out of 10. And I say it is a definite buy uh, for many of the reasons we've discussed. Um, the, uh, the, the, the darkness of it, the, uh, the, the, you know, I'm not going to say complexity of the story, but the story itself, like you were saying, Jay, um, uh, so a lot of the performances I liked, uh, just everything about it. I would say definitely pick up Hellraiser to see a movie that is bursting at the seams with style, wit, and reason. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, well done, uh, and black leather. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's our review of the very first one. That's Hellraiser 1987. Let us know what you think in the show notes for episode 157. And at this point, we want to thank Gilman Joel for joining us on this episode to help us review yes. this. It was it was wonderful of you to take the time, Joel, because you're on the East Coast. It's very late there. And as, a, as opposed to Dave. That's yeah, right. right. Well, we, we abuse him. You know, on a bi-weekly right. basis. They got, they got no problem with that. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of masochism, but that's right. That's right. But but Joel, will you let the listeners know where they could catch up with all, all your wonderful podcasting, especially your spooky flicks fest? I, I will indeed, uh, though I will be remiss if we, I didn't say, because I feel like it just hit me as you guys were talking. And we didn't talk at all. I mean, we mentioned high level, but Doug Bradley, holy crap. I mean, just yeah. the performance. Oh, yeah, he's I mean, amazing. About, you're behind that makeup, black context. He apparently couldn't see through. He could barely move in that outfit. And his voice is that, and, and they talk about it in the documentary, his voice is so, and I'm sure they modified it and whatnot, but it's so powerful. It's so just like, oh. So yeah, I, 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 all the Cenobites are, are fantastic. The makeups, the the performances, all of it. Yes. So I want to say that. And I wanted to uh, stand fully corrected. I knew I was pronouncing it way wrong, but I just had to go with it. Uh, the Clyde Barker magazine, it would be pronounced uh, Samhain because Sam Hain is woefully incorrect. It's Gaelic. It's Samhain, uh, which is a festival that takes place. Basically, Halloween is what it is. It's that time frame. So uh, I know that no one cares, but the English teacher, no. me, which has not, not, I'm not a Gaelic <laughs> teacher, but I'm just saying. Sawin, I think, is how you pronounce it. They, they do care. I get corrected on that once a year because I, I, I still say it, Sam Hain. I, I, I said like Hain. It's like when you see it, right? That's what you think. But I knew it was wrong. as I was, I was like, I'm not going to take the time to look this up. So I waited and then I looked it up later. So Sawin is the correct pronunciation. And I'm sure somebody will still call in and go, uh, no, you dope. It's not. It's this. But I feel like that's closer <laughs> to the actual. So, yes, you can find me, uh, Universal Monsters Cast, with the wonderful Wolfman Josh and Dave, Dr. Shock Becker, and occasionally the bride when she's able to join in. So, check that out on the Movie Podcast Network. And that's, of course, moviepodcast.network, where you get all the great shows, including the one you're listening to right now. Uh, my other show is also on that Retro Movie Geek that I do with Peter and Daryl, uh, great co hosts who put up with me week in, week out, and in some cases, multiple times a week, uh, which is what Peter primarily has been enduring as of late. So, uh, and he's been doing that because we are conducting the eighth Spooky Flicks Fest. So, if you like, horror anthologies if you like spooky flicks if you like retro horror go check it out retro movie geek all right thank you buddy we appreciate you being here it's great talking to you all right guys yes, thank, thank you, you sir yep. yes thank you so much you guys have a wonderful uh, rest of your conversation and i look forward to hearing it all right have a good one sir all right thanks, thanks. thanks.
All right, and at this point in episode 157 of Horror Movie Podcast, we are welcoming a very special guest. This is a different guest. <laughs> this guest here is a talent manager, a novelist, and a short story writer. He has a sci-fi body horror short story included in Year's Best Transhuman Science Fiction, and his uh, novelette, Music of the Wild is available in See Through My Eyes, a ghost mystery anthology. We welcome to the show, Vicious Victor. Hey, how are you doing, guys? It's an <laughs> honor to be here. Hey, buddy. Oh, so nice talking nice, to you finally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, thanks for coming. At long last. Yeah, we appreciate it. So um, we understand that um, as we are about to move into our Hellbound Hellraiser 2 review, that you, that you have a little bit of a special insight into this film. Is that true, Victor? That is true. I, uh, I did work for New World Pictures. I was there in 1988, and the very first movie I ever worked on was this movie, Hellbound. Nice. Okay. And what kind of things did you do for this this film? I was uh, an assistant. I was a young, a very young, vicious victor at that point, (laughs) and uh, I assisted the uh, the director of music business affairs. Uh, My whole first career was doing music business affairs in the film industry. Nice. And um, and this was the first movie they put me on. And as luck would have it. I was already a fan, so I had already read a couple of Clive Barker's novels, and I'd seen the first movie. Mm-hmm. So they're like, "Hey, you know, can you deliver these contracts to uh, to Chris Young?" And um, little did I know there was quite a story behind the the music of the franchise uh, that uh, you know originally Coyle had done the music for the first Hellraiser, and then had been replaced at the last minute. Um, but Chris is. Uh, score was incredible for for Hellbound. I I just I love it. I still have the CD that they gave me <laughs> from that year, nice. and I play it every now and then. Uh, and it's a wonderful uh, gothic score. We had lots more money to deal with on this score than the previous one. And um, as a little added bonus, I got to see the uh, the premiere of the movie in Hollywood and uh, kind of oh, wow. hang out with the guys. Yeah, <laughs> cool, nice. Now, now, this is a super dumb question, but I like to think about things like this. So, it, at various points in my life, like I remember one period where I was in college and I would end up, for whatever reason, I'd, I'd go to bed every night at like Dr. Shock hours at like 3 a.m. or so. <laughs> and my roommate, he would always get high and fall asleep with the Cartoon Network on. And so, I would always go to sleep with the um, sound of the Cartoon Network, like underdog cartoons in the background. And, 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 and this really has no relevance whatsoever, other than to say, for whatever reason, just remembering doing that is a very nostalgic kind of thing to me. So do you have a similar nostalgia associated with working on this film? Yeah, um, well, I think my my nostalgia all kind of uh, hovers around uh, the, the composer's studio because I had never been in a room like that my entire life. And let me just tell you guys, the smell of the computers and the transistors that are going in a composer's work lab are uh, pretty unique. Uh, and I've been addicted to that smell ever since. <laughs> oh, nice. nice. Uh, it also, it helped that, uh, that Chris had a, a bunch of uh, Halloween decorations, um, 
timely enough uh, around his studio. And um, he was also super, super nice guy and, you know, also very young at the time. So we were both getting started then. That's great. And, and, la- and last question on this preliminary stuff, and then we'll move into the review just to give us a little bit of a frame of reference here. Um, I mean, how do you feel about the first Hellraiser film and where do you come at, come in at it for rating on that one? Well, um, the upshot on the first Hellraiser was I enjoyed it. Um, I, I thought that it was interesting how Clive Barker used the sort of the, um, the elements of his classical education to, um, create what we were all hoping would be a horror franchise. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, it was cool that, uh, you know, he has sort of these recurring themes that you find in a lot of the Hellraiser movies that were really established in the first two movies, especially the first one. Uh, and um, another interesting bit of trivia uh, is that, um, you know, the the first one was so successful, you know, with the suits at, uh, at New World where I was working that they greenlit the second movie while the first one was being cut. And... Um, you know, immediately started on it. I mean, you'll notice that Hellraiser was 87, Hellbound was 88. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but to answer your question, I, uh, I really enjoyed Hellraiser. I thought it was uh, a fairly low budget effort, which it was. Um, but, um, you know, it was super entertaining and I had never seen anything like it. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Yeah, well said. You know, it's funny when you first said suits. I mean, I'm I'm familiar with that term of referring to the the business executives, the the penny pinchers and stuff as the suits. <laughs> but for whatever reason, I I thought you were at meaning the Cenobite suits, and I'm like, wow, <laughs> those those were a big hit right off the bat. Then that's good. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that would have been a good idea for uh, for cast and crew. <laughs> nice. All right, a crew T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's move into our feature review of Hellbound Hellraiser 2 from 1988. The vision is renewed. The power is reawakened. The fear is reborn. Because they have returned. Time to play. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 was, uh, came out in 1988, and um, it was directed by Tony Randall, not the guy from The Odd Couple. Um, <laughs> and uh, Clive Barker provided the story. He uh, consulted frequently and uh, he also was the executive producer on the film. Uh, and the premise is it follows the events of Hellraiser. Um, Kirstie is brought to an institution where she befriends a helpful young doctor, Kyle, uh, who is played by William Hope. Uh, you may know as Gorman from Aliens. And um, she also befriends an autistic patient uh, played by Imogen Borman. The... Um, Institution's occult-obsessed head, Dr. Chenard, uh, who's played by Kenneth Cranham, 
resurrects the evil Julia and attempts to outmaneuver the Cenobites for a position of power within Hell's hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and isn't Chuck Norris in this movie? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. I'm just playing. But there is a Hellbound movie with Chuck Norris, and you know everybody loves that one, right, Doc? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I often confuse the two. Right, right, all right. So, so Joshua, let's start off with you then, in terms of uh, some feedback on this. H- how do you feel this follows up to the first film? Well, following up is an interesting way of putting it because we do get that replay, the kind of recap to bring us up to speed. I wish this were uh, a little bit more like Halloween 2 where we just jump right back into the mayhem. It it, mm-hmm. it does, uh, which is odd now thinking about what Victor is saying, that it came out so quickly after. But do, they do spend a pretty lengthy amount of time recapping um, how we got to this point but it is a very fairly confusing world that we're in and so you can imagine that if the first film's a big success and you're getting new viewers who might be seeing this one for the first time it's already a little bit mind-boggling so probably helpful to have that recap at the beginning mm-hmm. um for people like ourselves who are binge watching it it's a little bit annoying but um <laughs> yeah i mean this is another <laughs> film that is huge on imagination as victor said like touches these classical storytelling elements but in a way that we've never seen before at this stage in in uh, cinema and also we have some pretty incredible uh, special effects makeup again happening we have this incredibly expansive um kind of fantasy world which we hadn't really had in the first film we didn't see much of you know, the hellish side of things other than just, you know, we, we spent a lot of time in the attic in the last film, and this really expands the world to huge degree. You know, I think a lot of it is just, you know, a, a painting um, in the background, but still it's, you know, it's pretty epic in, mm-hmm. in the world they're presenting. And uh, I think this is a, a sequel that really ups the ante of the first film, without completely losing um, what made the first film special. They are very, very different movies, but I do feel like this one kind of delivers on all the promises of the first movie, you know, that that film left unanswered or kind of unexplored. It's almost like uh, the first one's like this, um, the pilot of Lost from J.J. Abrams, uh, but unlike Carlton Cuse and uh, Damon Lindelof, you know, these guys were able to come in and kind of like answer all those big questions in a, in a pretty fulfilling way. Having said all of that, this just this isn't my kind of movie and I didn't really enjoy it very much. <laughs> really? Well, it, uh, would you agree that it doubles down on the weirdness? I mean, I think it even goes farther. Yeah. In some ways, this kind of reminds me of Puppet Master 2. We haven't just talked <laughs> about those movies. Mm-hmm. The way Puppet Master is kind of a standard film. Um, with, you know, pretty weird premise and a little bit confusing, but then the second one just goes nuts. And I kind of feel like, I kind of felt like a similar, I don't know, parallel, I guess, when watching these two movies. Mm -hmm. What about you, Dr. Shock? What do you think of it? Well, I mean, there's a lot going on in this film and a lot of, um, well, not a lot, but there's, there are different, it, it does go down a few different, I guess, avenues. Uh, but I really like, I like that. You know, the the first one sort of brought hell to earth. This one takes us 
to hell. We kind of go on the Cenobites home turf this time. Mm-hmm. And I liked that. And I liked the, um, the, the look of that and just the idea of sort of traveling into that realm. Um, and I liked seeing the, the creation. Uh, I mean, we're going to spoilers, right? We've already touched mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. I liked seeing the creation of a new Cenobite. I thought that was uh, really cool. And yes. one of my favorite lines is actually from this movie. And it's just, um, you know, when the, the, uh, the doctor comes out and he's the new Cenobite and he just goes, and to think I hesitated, <laughs> you know, I mean, I absolutely love that line because yeah. uh, it just speaks to that character more than I think anything that came before. You always knew he was a little bit out there. But then you just you just realize, uh, wow, this guy, you know, he's he's really out there. Well, you bring um, up a good question there, Dave, though. I mean, I mean, teach me about this, Dave. It, it seems to me that these people who we know were previously human beings, when they become Cenobites, it's like at some point they seem to be won over by the experience and yeah. the suffering. I mean, they do. They're converts of, of sorts. They, they become converts. Yes. And we even get, see a little bit of that with the Cenobites. We've come to know from the first movie, touching back on the human side, mm-hmm. um, you know, where, where uh, there's that scene, I guess with Kirstie and, and she's sort of trying to remind them, Hey, I know what you were when you were human. And, and it's almost like, not that they don't want to remember, but it, they don't care. Uh, anything about that anymore? Um, well, up to that yeah, I mean, point, I, you know, I did feel like it was interesting. Like Doug Bradley, you know, almost is incredulous that he ever was human. He's kind of—it's that's an interesting element, I think, to the film that you could probably spend a while, uh, you know, uh, dissecting. But I love this idea that yeah, they don't even really remember when they were human anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's we get some interesting reveals as to who some of the Cenobites are in that scene, the jumping way, way ahead yeah. of the story. Yeah, but it's yeah, we're very, surprising. one of them particularly is not at all what I, you know, would have had expected. Right, right. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Victor, I was going to ask you, I mean, this is great soundtrack, right? I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm, mess, I'm just messing with you, but what are, what are your other thoughts here on this, this film? I haven't heard of your, I mean, how do you well, feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you guys. Uh, I uh, I think that um, it's uh, the uh, the first two movies. Actually, the the whole series in in some way is. Um, I mean, it's very connected with uh, a BDSM culture, and um, I think that a lot of the just think I hesitated lines and and things like that are really metaphorically intended for what happens when we encounter something that's just beyond our understanding. Um, and in this case, it's, uh, you know, an issue of sensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, uh, you know, the Cenobites, the way they look, I mean, the, the, the way that they, uh, they behave is very plugged into, into that sort of, uh, mentality, you know, sort of, uh, the fetish culture and, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, I think if you, if you rewatch these and, uh, you listen to the lines, they, uh, they become a little more resonant in, in that realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, that said, uh, there's a lot of things that I really loved about this movie that I, <laughs> I unfortunately had nothing to do with. I was just uh, barely involved in the music. But uh, right, right. but the <laughs> the skinless man who Kirsty believes is her father, uh, uh, being actually Frank, uh, caught me by surprise. Uh, and um, uh-huh. and I, I think that the when Frank is finally encountered in hell, uh, we kind of you know looping back to what you guys said at the at the open of this i i think we we get a glimpse into what uh you know clive barker's vision of of hell for these you know these people that have sort of sold themselves to just achieving a greater and greater version of their favorite sensation um which is a sort of a, a faustian uh callback to uh you know the um either the Christopher Marlowe play or uh, uh, Goethe's uh, novel um, of uh, the, the magician Faust and the, uh, you know, the cautionary tale of, of going too far down the road of, of sensation. Uh, and um, I think uh, that's what, that's one of the through lines of the series. Nice. Hey, I love that. I'm really grateful that you're um, helping us with this review, Victor, because you are, uh, I mean, as a writer, and and uh, obviously you're well read in ho- horror literature, so that like you pick up on things that uh, wouldn't even occur to me. So that's pretty cool insight. Um, remind me of how this story ends. Forgive my ignorance. Is that something where it's just eternal suffering? Like in the Faust story, how what is the nature of that suffering? How long does it last? Like what what's the story there? Uh, there's a couple of different endings. Uh, the uh, and I'm not. Uh, honestly, I'm not sure which is which, but in mm-hmm. one, uh, Faust is damned to hell eternally, and in the other one, he's redeemed by the innocence of Margaret, his uh, his girlfriend okay. that he seduces with the uh, satanic power he has. Right. Okay. So, hmm. because I think uh, but, as time went on, uh, it became it became a more forgiving legend of Faust. Like, I think the, the horror in the tale was uh, a bit more prevalent in the earlier versions. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting to me how in, in stories like, like that, or like this, when people end up in hell for those in the Judeo Christian um, realm, those who do believe in a hell, cause not all faiths do, Typically, in my experience, they believe that, you know, once you're there, then you're there and there's no like getting out of that place. But it's it's interesting how in these stories, um, I, I guess it would be a boring story if it's like, well, they're there and they're they're toast. But but like because in, in all of these Hellraiser movies, when somebody's like doomed, I, I, I that's how I just think I'm like, well, that's the end for them. But then when they end up escaping somehow, do you think, Victor, that that is them playing or incorporating some sort of redemptive arc in order to give the audience just so it's not so in, oppressively bleak. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, I think that there's, there are elements, uh, I mean, they want the stakes to be high for, you know, Frank, Julia and Kirsty. Um, but they also want to bend the rules a little bit so that Kirsty can, you know, journey to hell, Theseus-like, you know, make her way around the labyrinth and, and make her way back home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's neat. I, I also think it's interesting to keep in mind kind of the perspective of the Cenobites, too, because, as you know, as they say in the first film, you know, some would call us angels. 
there's certainly many references to the fact that they're enjoying this pain, um, you know, throughout. And I think uh, it's interesting to kind of think of it as this eternal progression, essentially, where, you know, they those who can correctly um, endure, as Victor was kind of saying, if they, if they can kind of figure out how to, to approach this lot that they've that they've found themselves with, then they can actually kind of become perfected within that realm. And then those, for those who can't it's torture. And so they need to find a way out. And I, I don't know, that's kind of an interesting way uh, or mm-hmm. kind of interesting aspect. I think of the storytelling. Yeah. I, I like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. So Josh, I thought when upon watching this, um, I, I was thinking of our friend, Dr. Moody, He's one of my favorite film professors. (laughs) And he said about sequels, he said the problem with sequels is they always have to figure out some way to go back on the change, you know, because, and, and, and I think what's interesting here is the way that they're able to, to pull the daughter back in because she sees this vision of her dad or what she thinks is her dad. Yeah. And, and, and he's saying, I'm in hell, help me. And, and, as I thought about that, I'm like, yeah, if you had a loved one, like as scary and horrifying as the Cenobites and all this experience was from the first film, if you had a loved one that you believed was trapped and was asking you for help somehow, then you would have to do it. You you just feel obligated. And so I thought that was really clever and convincing um, mm-hmm. to give that, to provide that character motivation to get her involved yeah. again. Right. And then only to have it sort of, pulled away almost like it was in the first film where she thinks she's dealing with her father. It's cold. Um, yeah. And it, turns, and it turns out she's not, yeah. uh, that really is. I mean, that's, that's really kind of, that's about as cold as it, as it gets. Very dark. <laughs> I, I was, I was excited to see a, a more depth to the Kirsty character. And I feel like Ashley Lawrence really brought it. I, I feel like she oh, was yeah. a far better actress. And whatever happened in that year between films, I felt like she, I don't know if she took some acting courses or what happened, but I felt I thought she was way better in this movie mm-hmm. uh, than in the first one. I also think the Julia character is interesting. I mean, she really just looking at that character arc over two films, she really becomes an evil entity, you know, right. and at the beginning, she's just kind of this person who's longing and lost. And we even talked about in our last review that, that she kind of is responding like a victim of, um, abuse might, but but in this film, she's taking control of that, and she's becoming um, the powerful she's, person in these. Relations. She's become she's become the Frank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and isn't it true? And maybe Victor would would be able to speak to this. Isn't it true that um, like initially the filmmakers for this franchise they had intended that she would kind of be the monster, the recurring monster of the franchise, but then Pinhead just pulled ahead in popularity he was you know so i guess uh novel people ended up you know really enjoying that character of pinhead and so then he became the prominent monster but my understanding is that julia was initially going to be the the monster character yeah uh, you're 100 percent right um Mm. you know uh i i had read a couple of novels and a bunch of short stories of of clive barker's before uh, these movies came out, and um, he is very good at writing three-dimensional 
women uh, as characters, as well as men. But uh, but he thought it would be a great idea to have uh, a woman antagonist that you know got on top of her situation, just like Wolfman Josh said, and um, you know is sort of in the in in the classical position of the uh, the troublemaker in a noir film and uh frank is almost cast as the femme fatale um he's sort of tempting and uh right, troublemaking yeah yeah but she causes all the problems and uh, <laughs> uh you know with her her uh, ne'er-do-wellness and uh, and of course <laughs> she brings that to the forefront in the second movie um and in her attempts to incarnate as the evil queen just speaking about like well-rounded female characters and stuff like that, it is actually really interesting. I don't want to go too deep into this because I know there's an aversion to anything can, that could be considered politically correct for some reason in our current <laughs> culture. But I do yeah. think it's fascinating in kind of the Me Too moment that we're in at the moment. I feel like the Frank, you know, character is just feels so much more off-putting. But I'm, I mean, I, he was never intended to be a good guy. He was always kind of intended to be a sleazy guy. But in kind of that way where, you know, he's like, hey, baby, you know, you know, you want it kind of thing. And like that's it's it's interesting how in the moment we're in now, it just feels so much like more intense, I guess, than um, mm-hmm. right. it may have played before. Yeah, that and Julia's hairstyle. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I, I think um, one of the greatest things that I could say for the films that I've seen in this franchise, and especially for this film, is just how artistic and imaginative it is. I, I really feel like it even increased in in its artistic merit and value here. The creativity of this movie is just off the charts to me. And and honestly, it reminds me of a film, uh, and I'm, I'm sure, I bet you Josh knows this one, the the city of lost children from 1995. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean there there's so much uh-huh. going on in that film that's so interesting and and like y- y- the imagery in it is bizarre and wild and and some of these Hellraiser films like uh, Number Two and Number Ten, which we'll talk about uh, next week. Uh, these these rem- remind me of that kind of like art direction. Yeah, it almost has kind of like a steampunk kind of right. vibe to it or something. Yeah. But yeah. but I mean I think I mean I do think that the aesthetic of the Hellraiser films is very 90s. Like it has a very Gen X, I should say, kind of like <laughs> vibe to it. I don't know if it's because it was like the first time the BDSM stuff was kind of in the mainstream and you know it feels like connected to me to the industrial and gothic like music scenes and it feels right. very of its time. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree as well. Um, yeah. The, the, the rivet head culture, you know, industrial dance music was just yeah. kind of peeking around the corner at that time. Uh, I think um, Trent Reznor's nine inch nails album mm. hit a couple of years later, um, making it all kind of come into the, the mainstream four, but like, yeah, like 91 or something. Wasn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. 91. Exactly. And, um, yeah, the modern, modern primitive body alterations were a big thing back then. You know, I was a, I was a young lad, uh, that was pretty frightened by all that, but also intrigued. So these movies kind of resonated with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's neat. Um, just a couple other real quick things that, 
Do you guys find, I mean, especially in this film, uh, this happens to me a lot, but in this film, it's, it feels like people never try to explain things in movies the way that I would explain them. And, and I understand, like, my, my co-host can tell you, I'm not always the best communicator, unfortunately. <laughs> but, 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 like, when you're, when you're watching these movies, it's like, why don't you just tell them clearly, you know, communicate a little bit so people can, I don't know, that's always a frustration. But I, I guess that's also what makes it a horror movie, right? Because I don't know. I don't know if you guys have that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. I think you're 100 percent right when it comes to this movie. Uh, it was very kitchen sink. You know, they they throw so many concepts at you. But I think the intention was to feel like you were in an overwhelming environment. Um, you know, to sort of put you there with uh, with Kirsty. You know, trying to get out. Um, and uh, and you know, like a fairy tale. You know, the she goes into the into this super alien place and she doesn't know the rules and then battles her way out and then things are kind of normal for her at the very end mm-hmm. yeah well um i was gonna tell you guys so we we got a, a a really great voicemail um about the this particular film and it is it is lengthy so everybody get comfortable but um it, it's it's worth your time, and I'd like to play it now if it's okay with everybody. And then you can also be thinking about your ratings. So here, here we go. Here's this voicemail. It's like six minutes. So here goes. Hello, Horror Movie Podcast. I have to say, I am so happy that you guys are going to be reviewing the Hellraiser franchise I love me some Cenobites, love me some Pinhead, and my favorite movie of all time, Hellraiser 2. It's second only probably to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, and uh, yes, that's in my biased opinion. Starring the beautiful Ashley Lawrence as Kirsty. I had the biggest crush on her as a kid, and I can't say that that crush has gone away. So... I want to say that managing to separate oneself from their nostalgia, it's kind of like trying to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with a dead beaver and some dental floss. It's just not going to happen unless maybe you're MacGyver. (laughs) So let me just go ahead and don my Hellraiser beer goggles here. Okay. Got these firmly strapped onto my head, and uh, yeah, let's go on into it. So, this movie, it, it's full of tasty treats. Hellraiser 2, uh, it kicks off right after the intro, letting us see an archaeologist played by the indomitable Doug Bradley getting turned into the illustrious Pinhead. I love this scene. It foreshadows the events of the film's climax very cleverly and allows us some insight to the famous hell priest's origins. There have been many complaints out there uh, being made about the direction they later go with Pinhead in this film. I do enjoy the exploration, though, so I tend to disagree with those complaints. Now, rarely we're given a taste of where this film 
takes one of its lead antagonists. That's that's just not something that we typically get in movies. Uh, the fact that this franchise is willing to rediscover itself, it shows, in my opinion, uh, creativity that's lacking in more uh, formulaic sequels in the world of mm. horror. Now, yeah. the Resurrection of Zombies 7 podcast should know exactly what I'm talking about. Shout out to Ron Martin. Mm-hmm. Coping with the previous events in our last film, Hellraiser 1, Kirsty wakes up in a mental institution. She's visited by a skinless being that writes a pleading message on his, uh, of his damnation uh, with his own blood. Kirsty then believes it's her father, and so begins her descent into what she believes to be a rescue mission. But uh, this isn't quite like the rescuers down under that you would expect. This is more of a, a hellscape approach. Would not want to see those little mice go there, now would we? Uh, but this actually, yeah, it turns out to be a tale of examining the human soul. This examination, I believe, is very clever in unraveling it, and, and, and it's clear to me that this was their goal, hitting their uh, philosophical discovery very home with the character doc- Dr. Philip Chenard. Uh, Chenard, in my opinion, he, he portrays the unstoppable curiosity in all of our minds. The wonder, fear, and fascination all mankind has with, the, with death His path drags him parallel with the other characters, uh, their self-discoveries, who all cross-intersect with one another in hell. Chenard, however, embraces what the others cannot, showing us the raw power and corruption that uh, that comes from dismantling the belief in ourselves. There's a lack of higher power in the Hellraiser films, and Hellraiser 2 is no exception. The true power is within us. It is the ability to do good and form our own sense of reward within our soul, or be damned by our own hand. At the end of the day, we are the engineers of our own path. Hellraiser 2's nihilistic and artistic depiction of Hell could only be realized in its time. The simplicity and raw atmosphere behind the set design is surreal, filled with practical effects that allow our malleable minds to shape the unseen. The beauty of Clive Barker's hellscape, in my opinion, is breathtaking. So if you're looking for a horror movie with 80s style, 70s atmosphere, and creative yet bizarre storytelling that's usually only accomplished in the written form, well, check out Hellraiser 2. I give this film 10 out of 10 puzzle boxes, and (laughs) in my opinion, it can do no wrong in my hellbound heart of hearts. (laughs) Thanks again for doing this, guys, and good luck on the franchise. Thanks again. <laughs> really means a lot. All right. That was our guest for part one of the Puppet Master franchise, mm-hmm. Matthew Fishgold, a.k.a. Kegel. So, yeah, that's cool. Um, he mentioned at the time Hellraiser 2 was his favorite movie, and so it's kind of like, oh, did we get him on the wrong franchise <laughs> review? But, no, I mean, I think he <laughs> he did an excellent job 
with Puppet Master he, he as well. He was great on that first one. Yes. Yeah, appreciate him uh, chiming yeah. in here as well. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, guys. Uh, so let's move into our uh, final thoughts and ratings here on Hellbound Hellraiser 2. And uh, we'll start it off with Dr. Shock. All right. I think um, this is one of the sequels, I think, that, that holds up. Um, and I liked how it took us down into hell. I like how it explored the Cenobites a little bit more. I really liked uh, the uh, Chenard character and where he went. Um, and, um, and following uh, Kirstie. Uh, you know, as, as she tries to to find her father and is frustrated once again. I mean, if there's anything, it does it does try to tackle quite a bit uh, all at once. But I would give it an eight point five out of ten, and I'd say I'd call it a buy. I think that I, I think you should have both uh, the original and this one, no mm -hmm. doubt. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Eight point five. Doctor Chuck says buy it. And what do you say, Wolfman Josh? I mean, I kind of set it up. I, I, I mentioned there's so much to appreciate here, and I think this is a series generally, although it does go downhill quite a bit in some of the other installments. I think this is generally a series that there's a lot of subtext that you can parse if you're interested in delving deeper into the thematic elements and um, and story elements that are just good that are going on here. I think this is doing a lot of interesting things in terms of the way it approaches monsters and the, and the way it approaches uh, pain, but in the way it approaches horror, you know, a lot of horror movies are jump scares and a lot of horror movies are, um, you know, just like tension build up and release. This is uh, a, a film and a series that deals in, disgust in the horror visceral horrors that uh that you have to kind of deal with and endure i guess as the cenobites would say right mm -hmm. so i think it's it's a chore for me to watch it but i but i do appreciate that it's doing something that is less common in the world of horror it's also just filled with gross gooey stuff to look at and <laughs> like grangignol like we're seeing just horrific images and you wonder is this purging something in me to be able to see this stuff for me it kind of just grosses me out and i don't it's not something i really want to spend my time with but i i do appreciate greatly um the the amount of thought that goes into this because i do think it's there and i think it's also as much as as you know uh, someone like victor can you know has the background to be able to delve deeply into uh some of the stuff that's presented here I think it is also a movie you can just watch on the surface, gross out, you know, gorehound level and, you know, marvel at the the hooks and knives going into flesh and, you know, skin being ripped off and all that stuff. It's there, too. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's doing something more than that. So uh, I don't like it. I don't like watching these movies. It's been a miserable experience for me. But I appreciate it. So, I mean, as a film, I think this is easily a seven. I, I I think I would be fine to go higher, except I just don't like them. So, mm -hmm. um, I think this is, in a lot of ways, a horror classic. And I and I can imagine any um, it being a film that any 
you know, died in the wool horror fan is going to want to see at least once uh, in your life. Not that it's going to be a pleasant experience. This is not like a fun romp of a horror movie. This is uh, this is painful and uh, and sickening and and it's full of dread. It just makes you kind of sick to your stomach in <laughs> a lot of the time, you know. But yeah. it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, just on, in the same year that we're watching a film like um, Hereditary, which is like the big movie this year, I feel like that film is a little more modern in its style. It doesn't have all this kind of S and M stuff in you know that's dealing with it doesn't have uh you know that kind of industrial gothic feel to it but i feel like it does deal when it when it goes full horror it deals with the same kind of dread that this does where it's just like disgusting and it makes your stomach sick like you just want to throw up like you're just you know it's it's oppressive and i feel like this these this film is oppressive in in the best possible way, I guess, if that's your brand of horror. Nice. Um, and, and I, so I like what you said there about it being so sickening because, uh, one thing that was a bummer for me about watching some of these movies is that, um, I, I always like to eat while I watch movies and man, <laughs> this really, these movies have really put a damper on the snacking. I, I will say, <laughs> but, uh, so Josh, you said seven out of ten, and is this like a, a rental? Then, I would or? say call it a must-see rental for horror fans who want to be completists and have seen all the classics. Now, if you're like me and this isn't generally your kind of thing, I, I, I think I said this with the last film. It could kind of be an avoid for me, as much as like I hate to say that. Like <laughs> there goes all any horror cred I had, but like it's just not my kind of thing. So. I, you know, I think what I don't like about this on top of just that vibe is I'm not into fantasy, really. Like, I don't like fantasy movies that much. Same. I, 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 I much preferred the human manipulation that was going on in the first film. I think what we have here when we get into, as, as stand-up comedian Pete Holmes would say, a film with realms. Everybody else is right. I'm wrong. I don't know why I can't get into it. And I've been thinking about it recently. I think I figured it out. It's, uh, it's realms. <laughs> realms. Yeah. Any show that has realms, I'm out. What are you talking about? I didn't know that was a deal breaker, but if a man on a horse gets off in like a foggy wood and goes, in this realm, I'm like, nope, forget this show. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> These magical stones work in this realm, but not the nether realms. I just turn it off. I can't have realms. No realms. <laughs> I sound like Seinfeld. No realms. <laughs> Villages, cities, townships, realms, no. <laughs> I'm not really into realms. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> right. I, it's it's just not I, I kind of loses my attention there. So right. on top of the kind of disgusting elements of it. But yeah, I don't know. It's just not a place I really want to spend my time. If but I'm not saying others shouldn't. And I think if you like this if this is your vibe, I think this is probably, you know, as good as it gets kind of in that realm. If if you like the film like The Void a lot last year, I I get why fans of like Hellraiser would have appreciated that film and, and vice versa. So yeah. <laughs> it's it certainly has been massively influential in a certain type of horror and was groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Nice. 
Yeah, and, and side note there, speaking of realms, my favorite realm, I think, is Eternia because it has Battle Cat. Um, so <laughs> my, my favorite, my favorite thing about this is, uh, the, the fact that it's, it's a continuation of the nightmare. And what I mean by that is if you saw Hellraiser and you were seriously disturbed by it, I mean, especially if you saw it as a, as a young person and then, and then if you carried that on and had nightmares that were subsequent to see, you know, seeing it, um, I feel like this, this film is one possible, you know, nightmare scenario that could have unfolded. I mean, and, and so I like that. It's like a, a nightmare on screen. And, and I know that that would be easy to throw around with horror films. I don't feel like I say that very often. Like an- another film that I, I categorize that way is my all time favorite, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That feels like you're watching somehow somebody's nightmare actually projected on a screen. And I feel that way with this film too. And so I think it's really powerful that way. Um, I'm, I'm with you, Josh, in that, you know, I'm not a fantasy or supernatural type of, uh, person typically it's not my preference but um, this is so imaginative and artistic I mean the art direction I mean it's really a shame and and I, I'm not I don't think I'm overstating this maybe you guys do but but I feel like this I'm I'm sure Dave that this didn't get any like uh, Oscar nominations for uh, art direction or anything Oh, I, I haven't checked, but I can pretty much guarantee it. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like it could have. I mean, it, I feel like oh, it's yeah. deserting. I'd, I'd like to see what was nominated that year up against it. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, there's so much creativity and so so much that's visually interesting, albeit disgusting, on the screen. It's it's pretty remarkable. So for me, this is, um, I gave the first Hellraiser a nine. This is an 8.5 for me. Um I, uh, Josh said it very well when he was talking about the first one being based in character choices, and I agree with that as well. I think this one is is harder to identify with in terms of just my everyday life experience, but because of the art value and because it's so freaky and far out there, I give it an 8.5 out of 10. I'd call it a, a must-see at least once, um, and I think this is worthy of a, a purchase. This is a buy-it. Vicious Victor, bring us home. Dude. Sorry, before before Victor just nails it here, these are the movies that were nominated in 1988 for Best Production Design. I I hope the one one that I think did, but here's the run-up to it. Beaches? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Beaches? What are you talking about? Beaches, Rain Man, Tucker, The Man in His Dream, and who framed Roger Rabbit? Now, who framed Roger Rabbit is on, I think, arguably the same kind of scale of imagination. Mm-hmm. And I would agree, yeah. Exceeding it, yes. but uh, so I hope that one won. But holy crap! Oh no, it didn't win. Dangerous Liaisons won that year, so that is ridiculous. Oh geez, wow! How does Beaches get nominated for something like that? <laughs> yeah. Seriously, no respect. I know exactly. <laughs> All right, Vicious Victor, bring us home on this. What what are your thoughts and rating? Yes, sir. Um, 
Yeah, Jay, I just want to say, first of all, I really, really appreciate you uh, playing Cake Wolf's message and, and you guys rating this high. It just makes me feel so good. Um, it makes me feel back, like back when I was working at New World in 1988, and I was like, all right, I contributed to something really cool. You know, um, I haven't felt that so much until now. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Nice. Um, I, as usual, you know, all three of you have nailed everything on the head with this movie. I think that the, um, I think what I want to comment on first is the, uh, the fantasy elements. Now, anybody out there or you guys that are thinking about picking up Clive Barker novels, uh, I think that they are basically fantasy novels. Um, it's just that the first couple of things he wrote had a lot of horror elements. And I think that's how he became known as a horror guy that led to Hellraiser. And then after Pinhead appeared, he is always known as a horror guy, although he's really a fantasy guy. Hmm. And I think, um, yeah, uh, Wolfman Josh made some very astute observations about the, the first Hellraiser movie kind of being in between the first two, uh, you, know, you know, fantasy and sort of realism. And um, and I think that that was probably against Clive Barker's sensibility to do, but he wanted it to be accessible. He obviously wanted it to be successful. And I think when the second movie got greenlit so soon, he was just like, all right, we're doing everything. We're pouring all the fantasy elements into this. And um, for better or for worse, you know, that's uh, what colored the, fan- the franchise from, from that point forward. Mm-hmm. Um, just the, the wealth of ideas that, that he's so well known for. Um, but, uh, but Jay, uh, yeah, you mentioned one of my top 20 movies of all time, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, and you're absolutely right. That is also a dark fairy tale, but the rules in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think are very grounded in reality. It's, it almost seems like, Mm. you know, this is fairy tale like, but this could actually happen. Whereas in, (laughs) yeah, in Hellraiser and especially Hellraiser two, it's clearly fantasy from, frame one, you know, from the, you know, the gates opening up and, you know, there's another dimension and the Cenobites appear and, mm-hmm. and then it, it just gets more and more wild. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, I, I think that that's, those are the types of movies there are, but there's good news, uh, <laughs> later in the franchise, there are some more realistically, uh, angled episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, Anyway, uh, I absolutely loved this movie when it came out. Uh, I am very proud to have been a part of it. And um, I, I really marvel at some of the achievements they succeeded. I think it's, it's one of Doug Bradley's best performances uh, as Pinhead. He's just really amazing. The, the lines that they gave him with the way he said them uh, just really, really sells it uh, in this. And, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that um, that said, I will give it a rating of a seven, um, being you know a seven as op- as opposed to a ten, being like the top, uh, being the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, I would rate this a seven. However, I'd recommend it as a buy for fans of the franchise or not, um, because it was such a seminal movie 
uh, I mean, because of these these two first movies, uh, we got Hellraiser for another 30 years. So. <laughs> right. And would so. you guys say you could watch this one without the first one? Although I personally prefer the first one slightly, I think, um, in a lot of ways. This does do that recap at the beginning. Do you, would you recommend people just watch this one just out of curiosity? Uh, yeah, I guess if you got uh, if you got an hour and forty five minutes to spare, and you've absolutely got to see a Hellraiser movie, you could see this one. Hey, if you're going to watch one Hellraiser movie so far <laughs> of the first two, uh, it should be what, it should be the first one. Okay, all right. I would I would say the first one too, um, just because it's one of my one of my top five. Agreed. But I think you could maybe watch this one without seeing the first one, like you're saying with that recap. It gives you a general idea of, you know, what to expect. And it's not as if you'd be completely in the dark. So yes. yeah. I guess you could watch this one on its own. And I do think this is one of those sequels where it's arguable that it's as good or better than the, the original. I, I do, again, like the original better, but I think this is up there with, you know, in that conversation. Oh, yeah, definitely. Alien versus aliens and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and and I think you guys, um, I think Josh was speaking to this at the beginning, but I, I think that they were just banking on the fact that okay, probably not a not as many people as we would have liked have seen the first Hellraiser yet, and that's why they they did it that way with the recap. And I think you guys said that, but um, and so you know, I can't I can't fault it too much for that, and but um. I think it's a, it's a good movie. It's a good and horror it was, movie, and it was quick enough. It didn't. It wasn't like you know some movies where it's ten minutes of recap. It was just <laughs> sort of a quick little. Wasn't it? I thought it was like twenty no. minutes. <laughs> it wasn't no. like uh, Puppet Master: The Legacy, right? Like, no, like, yeah, or, or some of those. That, um, I swear this is pretty long. I'm gonna have to look at the. I mean, I wasn't doing the J. Jay of the Dead watching my stop. Right, right, right. <laughs> I don't remember it being that long, but maybe it was longer. But like some of those old mummy movies, Josh, that we covered on Universal yes. Monsters, where oh, yeah, it's yeah. a 55 minute movie and 20 minutes of it is a recap of the previous yeah. movie. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's egregious. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so that, that concludes our uh, feature review for Hellbound Hellraiser 2 from 1988. We hope you'll let us know in the comments what you think of this one. And we appreciate Vicious Victor stopping by just to cover this film with us. It's really generous of you, sir. And uh, I wonder if you could tell the listeners where they could catch up with more of your work. Well, um, I am a writer of fantasy, science fiction, and horror. But since this is the horror movie podcast, um, I'll um, just talk about a couple of uh, books where you can find my work. Um, the, uh, I think body horror is, uh, is another recurring theme in, in the Hellraiser movies. Mm. So there is Definitely. a body horror story that I wrote. Um, it's more, uh, science fiction noir, but it's definitely got horror elements in it. And, um, that's, uh, the story, some assembly required, and it's in, uh, year's best transhuman, science fiction 2017 um cool. and uh yeah if you, you like more oh, thanks <laughs> <laughs> if you like uh, more gothic horror um there's uh there's an anthology called see through my eyes a ghost mystery anthology and um my uh my work is in there as well so um okay. yeah nice 
That's that's very impressive, that's sir. Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll have those. Um, and and where can they find this? So can we link that in the show notes to like Amazon? Yeah. Then is that absolutely? Yeah, they're okay. they're available on Amazon. Okay, that's what we'll do. And then, well, thank thanks so much for joining. I feel like between Joel Robertson, Vicious Victor, and Cake Wolf's voicemail, you guys all really elevated the conversation. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we'll oh, see where yeah. it goes from here, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and, uh, Victor, um, we're actually, we're going to have vicious Victor back with us next week to cover the, the remaining Hellraiser film. So we'll look forward to having you back then, sir. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I I'm looking forward to it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm honored that you guys asked. I've been listening to you guys for quite a while now and, uh, you're my favorite podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, and at this point, let's move into our review of Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth from 1992. In Hellraiser 1, Clive Barker showed you his vision of a private hell. In Hellraiser 2, he took you on a journey inside the inferno. Terror returns in mankind's final confrontation with evil. And this time, it's going to be Hell on Earth. All right, so Hellraiser 3, directed by Anthony Hickox. Uh, it's about, um, well, just to just sort of set it up, um, there's a uh, reporter... Trying to see, I'm looking, I'm trying to see, hold on, I'm looking at my um, synopsis here. I'm trying to see where it starts. Okay, anyway. As it was sort of set up in uh, the previous film, uh, Pinhead, uh, played by Doug Bradley, uh, has two distinct personalities, you know, his, his human self, who was a uh, World War I uh, British officer and, of course, the Cenobite Pinhead. Um, what happens, though, uh, at the end of that movie is there's sort of a schism, uh, you know, between the two. And what happens to Pinhead is he's trapped in what's something called the Pillar of Souls. It's like this, uh, it's almost like a statue that, that shows all of these uh, horrible... Um, uh, it's like, it's like these souls trapped, um, you know, within this pillar mm-hmm. and he's become part of it. Uh, he's, it's eventually, uh, bought this statue by a nightclub owner named JP Monroe and he puts it in his club. And, um, let's just say that it's not actually a, a pillar. This is, uh, something that, uh, pinhead is using to gather more souls to plan his eventual escape back into, um, Back into the real world. Uh, while this is going on, there's a, uh, a TV news reporter. Her name is, uh, uh, she goes by Joey. It's Joanna, uh, played by Terry Farrell. And she's looking for a story that's going to, you know, sort of get her career going. She's been doing a lot of fluff pieces, and she's, she's just trying to get something going uh, to prove that she's a legitimate reporter. And that's when she finds out that one of the patrons at JP's club is killed. Um, it looks like they've had these chains attached to them. 
And she happens to be at the hospital at the time that this person is wheeled in and, uh, and uh, you know, dies. So she starts looking into it. Um, she's uh, hooks up with um, one of JP's uh, former girlfriends to start questioning and find out what's going on. Uh, goes to the club and she eventually uh, is contacted by the now human uh, form of Pinhead. Um, you know, his former self saying, I need your help because there will be an ultimate battle that this, uh, the human, um, uh, of the human, I can't remember what his name is, but pinhead in his human form, um, wants to take on now the demonic pinhead for a final battle of, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's end this. Let's get pinhead sort of out of the picture type thing. Anyway. Uh, so that's the setup. I disliked this movie much more the first time I saw it. <laughs> I still don't like it. I still don't think it's very good. The dialogue in this movie is appallingly bad sometimes. <laughs> I, I didn't. I, I didn't even write down examples of it because I, it was just you, you're looking. You're saying, "Why are you even saying that?" Um, there are scenes that are set up, and and you don't know why. There's this whole thing that takes place in this hospital where a nurse is taking out implements of, you know, medical implements that could also be implements of torture and laying them out oh. on the table. Now, you're assuming this is going to lead to something. Oh, yeah. It never does. Oh, it wow. never does. That's it. It's just her laying them on a table. Then they wheel this guy in. Now, one of the things that always cracked me up about that scene, they wheel this guy into um, the emergency room. He's got these things attached to him. They're doing everything they can to save him. But it's not working. He's dying. All of a sudden, there's a surge with these, you know, on the chains and his head while laying on this on the structure explodes. His head just <laughs> blows up. <laughs> I thought it was very funny because the next shot is the director decided to get a close up of the monitor that showed it flatlining. It's like, <laughs> are you kidding me? When your head explodes, you immediately die. I know. Like it as like if, a strange choice. As if we needed that to like confirm yes, exactly. that yes, that we character. We didn't know he died. <laughs> I didn't realize he. When your head explodes, that's the end. That's. Oh. The, but this movie is chock full of information like that. But anyway, um, I am a I I am a Terry Farrell fan. I mean, even if she's not the strongest actress out there, I like her. I've always been a fan of hers. Um, going into deep space nine again. I talked about that. And you know, with, with the first Hellraiser with Andrew Robinson, she played a character in deep space nine and it was a strong character as well. So I've always liked her as an actress. And I think she makes at least a likable heroine in this film. Mm -hmm. um, again, you have Doug Bradley showing his range, you know, playing these two different characters. Um, he's playing the, the, and, and because the, the humanity is out of pinhead, He's now much more evil even than he was. One of the things about the first two movies is he was dispassionate. It was his job. He's right. there to collect souls. In this one, he is now the the villain, you know, the the uh, the the evil character. So yeah, he's and, a he's more malicious, right? And and exactly. He's more malicious this time around than he was uh, in either of the other two movies. In the other two movies, it's like, hey, look, this is my job. I'm here to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, in this one, he's looking for, he's out looking for, you know, to, to pardon the pun, raise some hell. Right. <laughs> right. And he's all alone at this point too. Um, 
which so, is something else that becomes, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say that he does one of the things. And one of the, th- the things about the other movies is that when they showed the Cenobites, it was almost like a sort of honor to have a position of a, of a Cenobite in hell that this was, that this was a, like, this is something that, that means something in this movie. Um, he's creating Cenobites out of everybody. He like comes across, uh, Oh, this guy was a DJ. Well, let's put some CDs in his head. He's now a Cenobite. Oh, that guy's a cameraman. Let's put a lens in one eye, and now he's a Cenobite. Um, I, I didn't mind that as much this time watching it as I did the first time. The first time I watched it, I'm like, come on. that's well, Everybody's got to be a Cenobite. You can't just, like, convince – you can't, like, just take over their mind. You got to turn them into a Cenobite every time. Right. Um, so I didn't like that. And there's one scene that always sort of bothered me is that – there's a scene where she's running away and, and again, I'm nitpicking, but this is the sort of movie where I think you can do that. You can sort of nitpick things. Mm-hmm. She's running and she's running down the middle of the street and things are exploding next to her, a car, uh, a shop, um, you know, a telephone pole falls down, all this stuff. And that's, you know, with, uh, because pinhead is sort of coming after her. He wants to get the box from her to destroy it so that he can never be sent back to hell. This is the best that that this that this this demon from hell can come up with, just blowing things up to the side, or is this the best that they could p- come up with as far as to try to make it? There's, it, it really is sort of a scene with zero tension. Yeah, it's a chase that r- you really feel like you should be, you know, on the edge of your seat, and it's just not because of the choices they make. There's just no tension in it whatsoever. So is there just um, one box in this one, Dave? Because there were multiple boxes in the previous film in Hellbound. Yeah, I, I, well, she has one. She has one of the boxes. Yes. Okay. And I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly where she got it from, but she does end up having one of the boxes. Um, and she even gets a videotape. Uh, so Kirsty makes a quick. Uh, appearance in this um, when you know of uh, her talking about the the Cenobites and and everything on a video that uh, that uh, Terry Farrell's character gets a um, you know her hands on. Now, now, like I said, that said, there there are aspects of this movie that again, Doug Bradley it gives a great performance. Um, I like Terry Farrell, and the the Pillar of Souls is is kind of a neat concept. I always thought that was a cool concept, and the first time. You see Pinhead sort of in action while in this pillar is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a good scene as well. And I didn't dislike the Cenobites this time as much as I did the first time. I didn't think they were as creative, but watching them now, I said, oh, yeah, they, they put a little thought into these things. It was a little more than I was giving it credit for originally. Yeah. But it is definitely a weaker film. It just is. Uh, it, it's. You know, it's one of the ones that could have easily killed the series um, if there wasn't more money to be made. Uh, so I'm going to say this one. I mean, I don't know. Have you, have you either of you seen this one yet? Or I mean, I know you didn't watch it for this, but have you seen it previously? Yeah, I, I have not, actually. I haven't seen this one. Okay. But, okay. but yeah, and I, and I don't think, yeah, Josh and I have not seen um, three or four. So, so. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I'm going to, um, I'm going to say this one's a, a, probably a four. I'm going to say it's a very low priority rental. I think that it gives you more pinhead than a lot of the other movies did. So if you like pinhead, you're going to like this. 
and it's not totally devoid of of a story there is something there um i just don't think it's all that strong right uh so yeah this one's it's it's almost an avoid but i'm going to say it's a low priority rental um yeah very low priority well what you said um about him like you know doug bradley doing a great job again i I think it's neat when you have a person who plays the same character you know after several like if it's like in a tv series like Mm -hmm. for some reason what pops to mind is like uh steve carell's michael scott in the office after seeing him for so many seasons he really settles into that and same thing with doug bradley here he settles into it and and just um i mean and he does and and because there's that because there's that break off of now the human and the the cenobite as separate it's no longer like it's a it's almost a different character now pinhead and he gets to be himself you know Mm -hmm. there are several scenes with him um as the human form and uh, you know much more compassionate person and so it's it that's why i think he was especially strong in this movie because he played both of them very well yeah yeah that's awesome okay but you're saying hell hellraiser 3 hell on earth is a four out of ten and you're calling this a a very low priority rental (laughs) yes sounds like it's only for fans of pinhead okay Gotcha. Only, mostly, uh, I'd say only for fans of Pinhead. Yes, and and I, I, I just have a, I, I. That's as close as I can come to to recommend in this movie. I mean, it really was very close to an avoid for me. Okay. All right. Well, then um, at this point, let's move into uh, Dave's review of Hellraiser: Bloodline from 1996. Far from Earth but frighteningly close to hell. (laughs) A new dimension in terror. Nowhere to run, no escape. Has a very familiar face. I am forever. 500 years ago, a mystical box was created. The key that unlocked the door to absolute evil. Oh my God. From one generation to the next, the descendants of its creator have been cursed. Kill them all. Now, the evil must be stopped to close the gates of hell forever. This was my first viewing of of Bloodline. Yes, 1996, uh, as Jay said, directed by Kevin... Uh, Yager, and it's very interesting because when this movie comes up, it says directed by Alan Smithy. Oh, <laughs> uh, which of course means that the director did not want his name <laughs> associated yeah. with this film. Um, whenever you see Alan Smithy uh, come up, wow! Uh, I thought that I, as soon as I saw that, I said I might be in some trouble here. Yeah, that's a bad uh, sign when that happens. That's never. It's never a good sign. Yeah, it's never a good sign. <laughs> I don't know of too many Alan Smithy movies that have uh, gone on to win awards. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. But anyway, um, I'm looking up IMDb and I'm going to do for this one. Like I said, it's my first time watching it. It does take place in the, it starts in the year 2127 on a space station. And there is a character and um, played by Bruce Ramsey. 
And what it is, is he plays, he's in this movie um, a lot, Bruce Ramsey. And he plays three different characters, but all within the same family at different stages of, of history, of the family's history. Because from what happens is um, he's on this ship and he's sort of controlling it. And he has the box. He's trying to open it up. Well, it's it, the ship is raided by these, um, I'm going to say like almost like space cops type things or, or mercenaries possibly even mm-hmm. who, um, you know, they're, they're storming it because he's gone rogue. And he starts talking to one of them. They're interrogating when he starts giving his family's history, how going back to the... I want to say 1800s, I'm assuming his ancestor was commissioned by this, this, um, this, uh, wealthy aristocrat who happened to also be a, uh, a devil worshiper is the best way to put it mm-hmm. to build a box. And this is the man who built the box that, um, becomes so prevalent throughout all of the other films, the, the puzzle box. He had no idea why it was being built. Um, so he drops it off at the mansion. Uh, he's very proud of it. He he thinks this is my this is my, you know. He shows it to his wife, and um, his wife's reaction is, "Oh, so it really doesn't do anything." And he's like, "This is my masterpiece," and he sort of storms off angrily, and he takes it to the mansion, and and he knocks on the door, and he gives it to I don't know if it was the aristocrat or his um, cohort. Mm-hmm. I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. And the reaction is just like, "Okay, thanks, bye." <laughs> and they shut the door on him and he's like well wait a second what what's going on here mm-hmm. so he happens to look through the window when they murder a this prostitute that they had brought over um uh, played by charlotte chaton i guess is her name mm-hmm. um and it's uh no wait that's not it where is it angelique i gave the wrong actress it's valentina vargas who plays uh, angelique she's a peasant girl they lure in there to, they give her food and she thinks she's just sort of going to have this, you know, food for sex encounter, but no, she is, um, murdered and they perform a ritual where they raise a demon known as Angelique that now inhabits her body. And she actually lives for several centuries as Angelique. Obviously she's now a demon. And that's that's um, um, Valentina Vargas is the that's Valentina Vargas. Okay, yes, that's okay. Valentina Vargas. Yeah, I'm seeing this imagery um, from the IMDb photos, and <laughs> she's mm-hmm. got the the hooks into her shoulder coming from her head. That's that's interesting. Oh, that that's her. That's her later on. And she's nor most of the movie. She's very beautiful. You know. Oh, she's, okay. She's she's as to to sort of get her way. You know, as you would imagine, a demon would look. All right. Um, all right. Anyway, then it goes into present day, 1996. There's the third story. And again, Bruce Ramsey playing one of the merchant family who has just created this, um, I don't know, something to do with light. Uh, but they're in a, in the building from the end of the second movie. So Angelique finds the box and she gets somebody to use it for her. And Pinhead shows up. And Pinhead immediately recognizes Angelique and is treating her almost like a queen, um, you know, for a while, as if, you know, it's been a while. And, and he even says, there has been a while since you've been in hell. It's much different now, <laughs> um, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. That's uh, so anyway, um, the whole thing is they're trying to get um, 
because they're in the building from the end of the second movie, Pinhead gets the idea that he could use this to sort of release all the demons, all of the Cenobites from hell at the same time, and he could sort of conquer the earth or something along those lines. I'm not 100% sure why he wanted to do that. I'm guessing to take over the earth. Right. Um, and they decide to, um, uh, there's, I don't know if this was the Philip Merchant, the John Merchant, or the, the, um, or the Paul Merchant. I'm not sure which one was in 1996. One of the Merchant clan um, <laughs> is married with a young son and Pinhead kidnaps the wife and child to try to force him uh, to you know, do this. He even creates a uh, Cenobite at one point out of these twin security guards. Mm-hmm. All right. These two brothers. And I'm looking for them here. I'm, um, I don't see their names anyway. Uh, but it's just interesting because you could, you know, the, these two twins and he creates this sort of <laughs> conjoined Cenobite out of from these two. Oh, interesting. That's um, cool. I love when they it was, riff it on was stuff. pretty cool. And it was it was pretty cool that the, the, the this and, and sort of the way he they did it. It was one of the film's bloodier scenes. Hmm. Nice. Okay, so th- I didn't mind the fact that this opened in space and that it was set in that it uh, that the main thrust of it was set in space because a lot of it is him telling stories from the past, and that's where you get a lot of the flashbacks. I thought it recreated the time period of you know the 1800s fairly well. I was very convinced that you know that this was taking place. Sometimes movies can't pull that off. I thought this one did. The special effects in space were not stellar, but they <laughs> nice. certainly weren't they weren't terrible. I've seen much worse. Yeah. Um I mean we're not talking, you know, like Star Wars close encounters here, but you know, it, it, it's it was not they're not they don't they're not laughable. So okay? what? They're not good. Why do you think horror characters always eventually go to space, David? Just, I mean, do you think they just they run out of ideas and they're like, well, it's set in space. Know. Alien it's was popular, and it's possible because it's interesting because this actually came out before Jason X. Hmm. So I would almost you'd almost be like, wow, everyone's copying Jason X, but this came out first. I don't know if this was the first one. Wow, I never thought. Of I don't know when Leprechaun did it. I don't know when the hell Leprechaun went into space. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but I, I just don't care enough to look it up. Right yeah. Now. I'll, I'll find but, out for you. Cause you, okay, you know, that's this important. Could have been, this could have been one of the earlier, if not the earliest, I don't know. I, I could be wrong about that. As far as, you know, uh, taking alien out of the equation of uh, that, that was always set in space the, of, of a, taking an earthbound horror character and putting him in space. This could have been. It's definitely one of the earlier ones. I don't know if it's the first, but it could have been. Yeah, because um, um, because yeah, Jason X, you're right, was uh 2001. 2001. Yeah. Right, and so like that, that was like quite quite a bit after this, because this was 96. Um, mm-hmm. this movie, and yeah, Leprechaun Four in space. <laughs> and yeah. and yeah, let me see. So what's the year on that? That's a 97. So, oh, so that was a year after this. So I bet you that this movie, The um, Bloodline, may have inspired Leprechaun going to space. Maybe. And that's another, that takes a point off of it right there. <laughs> but anyway, 
Um, I think when comedies go Hawaiian, horror movies go to space. That's just that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good. That's yeah. definitely it. Um. So there, those were the things. I, I there were things about it that I did like, and of course, you know, Doug Bradley is pinhead. I it's becoming, you know. It's just repetitive now that he does a good job. I think we just assume he's going to play this character well, well yeah. each and every time out. I, I haven't seen him deliver a bad performance as Pinhead in a, in a movie yet. Well, well, um, And the other cast... I'm sorry, go ahead, Josh. That uh, was me, sorry. Let me just ask you oh, something. I'm sorry, Jay. I apologize for interrupting. but um, No, go so, ahead. So they're just... I mean, my feeling is there just aren't as many sci-fi horror films as I would like. In terms of it being a sci-fi horror, I mean, do you get that sense of sci-fi blended no. in or not? No, no, definitely not, because that's just really just the setting to kick off the rest of the story. Oh. The majority of the film takes place in 1996, and there is a large chunk that also takes place in the 1800s. Um, okay. There's not, a, and it, then at the end, it sort of leads to this showdown in space on the space station um you know between the pinhead and um whichever member of the merchant clan that happens to be gotcha uh played by bruce ramsey so it's not i would not classify it as sci-fi i guess i guess it has you know there are portions of it that have the sci-fi elements um and they do classify it as such on imdb but if you're looking for one that's like really a true sort of sci-fi horror this is not it right I mean, not by a long shot i just wish there were more of those you know that were yeah. truly you know enjoyable but anyway go ahead sorry no that's all right um so anyway that's a lot of what i like about it. i did think the and again the performances especially by um i liked uh valentina vargas as angelique i really did i thought she was a strong character and i thought the movie was better when she was on screen to be honest with you mm -hmm. um even a little bit, uh, you know, more than Pinhead at times. I liked her character. Uh, and as you were saying, Jay, she does become a Cenobite at some point mm -hmm. uh, as also. And it's funny because I didn't find her as interesting as the Cenobite as when she was in control. Because when she was a Cenobite, she was basically Pinhead's. Um, she was she was controlled by Pinhead. Pinhead was in charge. Uh, and it's sort of, it's sort of, I thought weakened, definitely weakened the character. It may have been more visually interesting, but it, it, the character as she was in her original form, I thought was much more interesting. And I really did enjoy the scenes that, that she was in, but by them going through this family history, they don't give any one member, any one of these merchants, you know, the, the three that are portrayed any real weight there's just jumping around and when the wife and son of the one is kidnapped it doesn't have the power the you know the 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 weight behind it mm -hmm. that that you could sort of be like oh boy i really care you know because we haven't been given much reason it's just this guy created this one this merchant did this this one's in space he did that and he's trying to fix things so you don't really get the, the, there's no there's no character development, but there's also just no, we're not really given any reason to care about their story. I, I, I wasn't anyway. I didn't, I didn't give a damn. I, I really didn't care about 
what was happening to these characters or, or what they were doing because I don't think we were given reason to care. Yeah. Um, well, I just, and there's a, and there is also a, a kind of cool, um, this dog from hell that, that appears that I thought was, was kind of interesting as well. <laughs> it has a few scenes. Okay. Um, but anyway, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, and I'd like to get Josh's opinion on this Wolfman. Why do you think it is? I genuinely don't understand this. It, it seems like the higher you get up, especially part four, you know, part five, it starts climbing. They just, they don't have a story that, that I mean, the story is very thin or threadbare. It, it's not very rich. Like, why can't, I just don't understand why we, when we get up and even that high, we can't develop a story or hire screenwriters that'll write a story that's like, you know, legitimately engaging. Do you have any thoughts well, on that? I mean, we'll actually get into that when we review part five here in a minute. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think you might be surprised uh, with part five, but I think what's happening generally with these films is they're just chasing. And we've talked about this when we did our 80s slasher episode, I think, or at least when we were doing our franchise reviews of Halloween and Friday the 13th, it eventually becomes about the monster. And so the entire vibe of, the story changes. Look at Friday the 13th. The first film is this incredible movie about a mother exacting revenge due to the death of her son. Mm -hmm. And then three movies later, it's about a guy in a hockey mask stalking campers. And so the it, it completely changes styles. There's not the whodunit aspect anymore. There's not that personal connection with like a really intense emotional core to be fair we don't really get that from most of the original film but we're at least left with that impression <laughs> and instead we're left with a movie where we're chasing the month like we just want more monster right and and these movies you want more demon world you want more cenobite you want more puzzle box you want more of you know what you what are the the original elements to a hellraiser movie the things that stand out in this series beyond any other typical horror film. And I think you're, yeah. you're just grasping at straws, trying to come up with any story we can throw around these characters and any people we can put around them and kill them off in an interesting way. But right. I do think there are exceptions to that. And I think we are going to talk about that a little bit with part five. Um, so I, I look forward to that nice. as well. Okay. All right. So listeners stand by for that. All right, Dave, anything else you want to say about this one? Bloodline. Not really. Like I said, it's <laughs> the first time I've seen it. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually just saw it a few hours before we were sitting down to record. So these are just my initial reactions to the movie. Um, but if I were to come in with a rating, I, I can't give it much more than I think I get. I was a four on part three. Correct. Maybe I will go to a, 4.5 on this because of how they were able to at least competently pull off the space uh, portion and I thought did a good job with the you know the the look into the past um, and I like the character Evangelique but not much else so it's another low priority another very low priority rental okay all right, so that's Dave's review of Hellraiser Bloodline. That's the fourth film from 1996. 4.5 out of 10. Dave says it's a very low priority rental for you. 
All right, then. Then let's bring it home for this episode with our uh, fifth review of Hellraiser Inferno from the year 2000. All hell is about to break loose again. This time, a battle between good and evil has a familiar face. Welcome to hell. Hellraiser Inferno. I don't know, Josh, did you want to take this one? You know, Dave, you're doing such a good job. Why Why well, you fix what ain't broken? You know? <laughs> All right. Okay. Mm. All right. Well, I'm again. I'm going to go to IMDb. I, this was my first time seeing this film as well. Uh, there's a police detective played by uh, Craig Sheffer, um, who uh, we really just sort of get. We get to know this guy quite a bit. Um, he's not the best. Uh, he's certainly not the most um, honest cop. Um, he's uh, on homicide, and uh, him and his uh, his partner, uh, Tony, played by Nicholas Turturro, um, are looking at they're, they're at a crime scene. And, and it turns out that the, the, the victim here, um, the, uh, was it, uh, the main character had gone to high school with him and said, Oh, you know, I don't really, wasn't really friends with him. I just knew him. Uh, but finds the, uh, box, the puzzle boxes at this uh, guy's place. And, and he sort of takes it. He's, um, I guess he's, he's, I guess he holds on to it um, because later on, you know, he's he goes home. He's the kiss his daughter good night, and he tells his wife, "I'm working on a case." And then he goes and picks up a prostitute and takes her to a hotel. Well, while he's, um, uh, you know, after they have their encounter, and he happens to be in the bathroom, he's got the puzzle box and he figures out how to open it. Um, it's a little bit of a different, um, something a little different happens with this one, but it's still sort of the same effect that this guy's life starts to spiral out of control because something, ha- you know, he, the, the, the prostitute ends up, he leaves the prostitute alone in the hotel room and then later finds out that she's been murdered there. So now he's got to get his partner involved in co- covering this up. The partner's a straight-laced cop. But then what this guy, what the main character does is he almost tries to frame his his uh, partner to make it look like it might have been him. And he does that to make sure that this guy isn't going to go tell the, you know, the, the, the chief about what's going on. So this is not a, this is definitely a crooked uh, detective. Um, you know, not, not a lot to like about this guy, but... He's been seeing things and he's been having these strange, you know, everybody he he knows or he gets involved with ends up dying and it's looking more and more like he's to, to blame and he's slowly losing his mind. But it's it turns out that it's these things that he released from the box when he did it. And, and they're 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 they've um, sort of uh, become. Um, you know, they've, they've entered into his life and they're, and they're doing things to, you know, to make his already sort of, uh, chaotic world, uh, a little more, a little more chaotic, um, and driving him to the point of, uh, of despair. 
And I, this is a movie that, that does have a story. And what I liked is right off the bat, I liked that they sort of gave it that sort of film noir um, feel because he's narrating. You know, he's sort of narrating his own story. And it's sort of an honest narration. It's not like he's painting himself out to be this great guy. It's just sort of a straight narration. And like and the type you would expect to have seen in one of those old um old forties films. So I liked that right off the bat. And the story itself is pretty interesting. It, it really is about, you know, this guy. This is not a likable character right up front. But yet you can sort of understand what he's going through and what he has to lose with everything that's going down around him. Um, this one has probably the least amount of pinhead of any of the movies we've discussed um, mm. so far in this episode. Um, I, he's really pinhead is is more he shows up in a few scenes, but not often, you know, not enough. He's not there a lot. I, I, you know, but still the movie itself, there was enough to keep interest that you didn't, even if, you know, if you're looking for pinhead, you're going to be disappointed. But if you're looking for just a, a movie that's going to sort of tell a story and do it reasonably well, I thought that this movie, you know, pulled that off. So I've got three bits of trivia about this movie first it was the first direct to video installment of the hellraiser franchise and i would oh, say i would say for a direct to video installment it's pretty good especially oh, from yeah. what they've said about the last two it seems like I, do, I would have never even picked it as a straight to, to video to be honest with you yeah that's impressive uh secondly it's directed by scott derrickson uh, who as we've mentioned went on to direct sinister um, he's probably best known as the director of Dr. Strange at this point. And he's had a couple stinkers. Um, you know, he directed the day the earth stood still remake, which people were not a fan of and deliver us from evil, which I would say actually bears some resemblance to this movie. His mm. film deliver us from evil. Um, sounds like him. And the exorcism of Emily Rose, which I think is a really underrated film, or at least kind of a forgotten film. I think it's a great yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, yeah, and who doesn't and, love sinister? Uh, honestly, I mean, I oh, love Sinister. Yeah. Sinister is fantastic. I, I'm a Scott Derrickson fan generally. I think he's an interesting director because he is um, one of what I would s- suspect is relatively few uh, religious directors in Hollywood. And so I think he's great for a film like this or Delivers from Evil or Exorcism of Lee Rose because he's bringing uh, his actual Christian beliefs to bear within the context of these horror Mm-hmm. stories and i think that can yield interesting content um so what we have here the last bit of trivia i wanted to throw out there was that this was initially and jay brought back to what we were talking about with sequels a lot of them are just kind of grasping at straws trying to throw you know the monster into another movie this one as dave mentioned doesn't have much pinhead and, and in fact it reminds me a little bit of the first film where you really don't get to see much pinhead for the first hour of of that film, you know, and this one, you know, it's even less. Ultimately, it's kind of revealed why this is part of the Hellraiser uh, universe. But I think it's worth noting that the reason it does feel so different is it was not initially intended to be a Hellraiser movie. This was mm-hmm. a script that uh, Miramax had lying around and they wanted to. Uh, produce it so they thought well let's just turn this into uh, 
let's kind of retrofit this into a Hellraiser movie, which is what they did. And so I think it's interesting because I think I'm sure Hellraiser fans are probably disappointed that this maybe feels like a big departure from the franchise. I would say as like a very casual viewer of the franchise, I really like this installment. It's a great kind of neo-noir, you know, crime horror film, which is a lot of fun, you know, and I think it feels kind of like those um, crime movies that were coming out around that time. Those kind of like grimy, you know, seven and saw and eight millimeter kind of movies that were coming out around that time. I think it feels kind of in that vibe, which is not my favorite vibe, but I do prefer it to the nineties vibe. So I, I quite liked this movie, you know, and again, maybe that's not the right way to put it. I think, I think probably more honestly, I still didn't love this movie, but <laughs> I was impressed by it, uh, which is, seems to be kind of my reoccurring feeling about the Hellraiser movies. Wow. Well, well, you know what I remember about this? I mean, I, I haven't seen this one. It's always been on my list. And honestly, I was, go- <laughs> I was supposed to get to see it this evening before we recorded, but um, I had family stuff come up. But the reason that I've been very interested in it for a while is I heard a great podcast interview with Scott Derrickson and, and Josh, maybe you can help me out with this. Maybe you've heard it. It was probably with Kevin Smith. Right? Yeah. With Kevin Smith is probably on Smodcast. That's probably, he, he had a, a sh- very short lived series that he did, but I think it's still available like on iTunes and everywhere mm-hmm. where he interviewed filmmakers. And I think he only did like four or five of them. He interviewed Ryan Johnson for one of them. He interviewed Scott Derrickson. Yeah, and I loved I loved Scott Derrickson's interview. I mean, yeah. he he really um, just put it out there. He was pretty honest about you know his filmmaking career and everything. And he talked about the the making of this film. And and I, I think even Kevin Smith was saying, "Hey, it turned out all right," you know. And 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 yeah. so I've always been intrigued by it, especially since it was the fifth installment you know and it still turned out okay I, i've wanted to see it so i mean that was pretty early on in derrickson's career even when he did the kevin smith interview that was right after um sinister and kevin smith i think hadn't maybe not even done red state yet i'm mm-hmm. not sure but i think smith was kind of interested in like how do you pull off like this low budget horror thing yeah and i think that's why he was talking to him yeah so uh, if we can find that that podcast episode somewhere <laughs> The script that Paul Boardman and I wrote for that movie is a great script. I've gone back and read it since then. The script's awesome. The movie is not as good as the script that we wrote. And mm-hmm. and it was uh, too big of a movie to try to make for... Um, what was your budget? $1.8 million, I think. And there's a bunch of visual effects and makeup effects. And, you know, it's a, it was a tiny little direct So if we watched, movie. what was it? Hellraiser 5. 5. It's called Hellraiser Inferno. The budget was one... Hellraiser Inferno. The budget yeah. was one point eight. You, well, you know, and I pulled, I pulled it off, but, but it's, uh, but I learned, what year is this? I learned a lot. That was, I think, 2001, I want to say. I'm going back there. and watch through that prism and through the $1.8 million prism. If you, if you, you, you weren't excited on any level, like I've got a million dollars. Uh, oh movie. yeah. And you know, I still, there, the, the last third of the movie, I think is pretty good. You know, I th- like when, you know, I think the last third of the movie, you know, really outlives its own budget. We'll try to link it in the show notes Yeah. for this episode. Cool. Anyways, go ahead, guys. Sorry, Dave. No, I think I'm, you know, and I could see what you're saying, Josh, about it really did feel like the Cenobites and 
such things were an afterthought. Any other sort of supernatural being or something could have easily replaced the Cenobites uh, in this movie, and it wouldn't have lost a beat. Um, I think with the box, obviously, that was also sort of thrown in, but it's it's really about this guy who's just not a good person trying to deal with the fact that that you know his life is is falling apart, and this really through no fault of his own. You always get the feeling that this guy figured that you know when when everything went to hell in a handcart, it was going to be something he did. <laughs> Um, and here it just happened to be something by chance that happened to him and then his life is falling apart. Um, and and uh, you even get that feeling when you listen to it, to his narration, which I thought was handled pretty well. I mean, narration can always be kind of tricky, but when it, it sort of invokes, uh, invokes or evokes, I'm trying to, I don't know which is the right way to put it, but uh, from the 40s, you know, when, when, when you had the, the film noir and that is what made it sort of extra cool for me. Yeah, um, that that definitely. they kept that with it. Yeah, I love that. That's one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find the podcast. So it's it was a short series, part of the Smodcast ne- Network. It was called Smoothie Makers, and <laughs> um, he only did eighteen episodes of it, as I mentioned. But he interviews Richard Kelly, he interviews Edgar Wright, uh, he interviews Penny Marshall, Roger Corman. Um, and yeah, he does two full episodes with Scott Derrickson, uh, Ryan, Ryan Johnson. Yeah. But yeah, the Scott Derrickson episodes are really interesting. Yeah. So yeah, if you don't mind uh, Skyping, sending me those links, uh, Josh will include them, but thank you. Thanks for finding that. Um, yeah, for, um, for whatever reason, this is so random. I apologize. The, I, I heard a very similar parallel story behind Dracula 2000 as well. Like, like, um, and, and so I don't know if it was, um, it was probably Jeff Goldsmith's, you know, I mean, I think these things happen quite a bit, right? Like the diehard three is a very, another similar thing where I think, I know you guys like diehard two, and I guess a lot of people do. I really did not love diehard two for me. Diehard three was like, Whoa, not only is this return to form, but actually in some ways, I know it's blasphemy. Kind of like this better than the original. Like I really like what they're doing here, <laughs> and it was it was just because it was like intended to be a completely separate film called Simon Says, and they just you know, yeah scalpeled in John McClane into the the story. Yeah. So that that can be a major weakness, or it can be a benefit, or I think it can be a little bit of both, depending on what your point of view is. And I think in this case, it, it probably is a little bit of both. So this is way off track and I'm sorry if the listeners are super annoyed right now, but, but did you guys, have you guys watched Entourage very yeah, much? Well, not, not every episode, but a lot of it. Okay. So you get a good sense of it. Um, do you know how they're so, they seem to be so casual about, I mean, it's almost like to Vinny Chase, the scripts are just, it's just work and he may or may not read the script. He may or may not care about it. But it's just kind of like a side thing he has to do to, you know, continue his lifestyle. Do you feel like, and, and I know we can't generalize with exactness to everybody, but is it is it kind of like that where it's like a script is a script, whatever, as long as it makes money? Or do you think, do you feel like a lot of people are actually passionate? Because when by watching Entourage, I'm just thinking, wow, this is so cynical like there's not as much art as i as i thought there would be there's just a lot more dollars and cents 
I mean, I think it just varies from person to person. I would say overall, the industry is an industry. Mm -hmm. So I think, right. Yeah. I think the studios, the agents, a lot, you know, I'm sure plenty of actors and directors are just looking at it as a business and a way to become famous and rich. I think there are some great artists out there. I think mostly those people do not really ever break out to the mainstream. And I think occasionally when they do, those are the types of directors who we see winning a lot of awards or become known as like great auteurs because they're the few people who aren't jobbers. They're just, they're there to do some, do some art, get some art done, get her done (laughs) in the art world. So, uh, yeah, wow. you know what I mean. I, I think I think those people tend to stand out when they break out in in a studio setting or in a mainstream way, because I think most of the people who have like a really unique vision um, aren't lucky enough to kind of break through the mm-hmm. the kind of factory setting of mm-hmm. a lo- of a lot of what the film industry is. Wow, that's a great answer, Josh. Thank you. Josh has a lot of good insights, huh, Dave? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, Dave. So uh, bring us home on this Hellraiser Inferno business here. I mean, I think we've said everything that I would say, but I think it's I I think it's a really fun movie in terms of its uh, film noir detective film. It's not perfect. It's still got a lot of problems. And I think Derrickson grows in his career after this. um, With his very next film, Exorcism of Emily Rose, I think is a lot better than this. But I think. If this is a bit of fresh air into the franchise. And also I can see why it would be massively disappointing if you were um, hoping for kind of a, a hellbound experience, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, what do you rate it? Wolfman? Do you remember? Yeah, I like this one. I would give this probably a 6.5 and I would still probably call it a low priority rental. But, um, you know, I, I, I would say I like it almost, you know, equally as much as the other two films that, that I've spent time with in the franchise. Mm-hmm. Okay. 6.5 low priority rental. And what do you say, Dr. Shock? I'm uh, just slightly over that. I'd give it a seven and I'd call it a rental. I'm not going to, you know, put a priority on just a regular rental. Um, I agree that it's not, I mean, if it, it doesn't really fit as a Hellraiser, it does change some things from what we've become used to what happens when the box is opened. Um, and if you're looking for a Hellraiser movie, it's going to be disappointing. There's a kind of a reveal or like later in the film. And I think if that had just happened a lot like maybe the 20 minute mark or something it would have felt uh-huh. a lot more like a hellraiser movie throughout right 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 exactly um so yeah i'll say seven and i'll call it a rental okay seven out of ten rental for hellraiser inferno so uh that concludes the first five reviews of the hellraiser franchise if you join us next week for episode 158 we're gonna bring you six through ten so that'll be a fun time. And then Wolfman Yay. Josh, <laughs> Wolfman Josh, will you tell the listeners what will follow that episode um, on or around Halloween thereabouts? Oh man, 
We're going to have a Halloween extravaganza. I'm excited about it, guys. We'll talk about the new Blumhouse Halloween 2018. We'll talk about the 40th anniversary of the original John Carpenter classic. We could even do some talk about the 40th anniversary of Halloween Part 4. And we've had a request from Sal Roma to talk about the producer's cut of The Curse of Michael Myers, which I'm I'm happy to bite the bullet and, and take one for the team there and, and do that. It's one I've been meaning to watch anyway since i bought the blu-ray so i think uh i think we're gonna have a lot of fun yeah and i you know we always like just talking about you know our halloween plans and hearing from the listeners about their halloween plans i I, I always enjoy our halloween shows Mm -hmm. yeah it would be really interesting if we can get um, some people to call in and let us know what they're doing halloween that would be really interesting absolutely i like that and i also like I, i think it'd be great to get some voicemails people tell us what they think of the new Halloween 2018 and maybe well, and, oh, and yeah. Yeah. let me just mm-hmm. say I think we're going to try to do a little mini meetup in Salt Lake City I know like most of the people obviously aren't out here and unfortunately Dave's not out here but for those listeners who are in the Salt Lake City area um, I know Kagan is planning on I'm coming down I know Matroid is planning on being there um, we're going to try to do a little get together and watch the movie together so maybe we even do a little short live recording after the after the theater experience too that oh yeah that sounds nice. great now i i it won't is, it has been almost i can't believe it has been a year it's yeah it, it's now been a year since uh since the meetup yeah too long dave too long well, let's, since let's not dave. make it another year let's <laughs> well let's, let's look forward to another meetup here and uh yeah, well i think i i know um something that um joel had mentioned i guess halloween five uh, yeah. is 30 years next October. Yeah, so we we initially were intending to do a meetup this fall due to the Halloween 4 anniversary, but not really thinking it through. This is the 40th anniversary of John Carpenter's Halloween and the release of the Blumhouse Halloween, so all of the Halloween people are tied up in a giant event that's going on in the Los Angeles area, and so we couldn't really get some of the people we were hoping to show up um, for Halloween four anniversary, but next year there isn't really anything going on and it's the Halloween five anniversary. So, um, that could be a lot of fun and we could do kind of a four and five retro screening and maybe try to get, uh, people from both films out. They're both shot in Utah. So I know there are a lot of people who just live here who worked on the films. Um, yeah. And so I, one of my friend's moms was a stunt double, actually <laughs> on, well, that's great um, on halloween nice. four so nice and I, I definitely will plan to be there for that uh, that's a year to plan here so i'm gonna uh try i'm definitely gonna make that happen somehow mm-hmm. well yeah and that's don shanks who plays michael myers in halloween five is a local stuntman in salt lake city i've worked with him on a couple of films so i think we can get him out here and we're going right. to try to pull our strings with Greg Amortis to get um, Daniel Harris. So we'll see what we can do. No promises as of yet, but right. we've got a year to plan it. So start letting us know if that's something you'd be interested in and we can see what we can put together. That'd be yep. super fun. Yeah. And by the way, so uh, money on a bike in Tooele, she get, she get him in on that uh, Salt oh, Lake yeah. meetup. Yeah. We got a oh, few, yeah. we got a few uh, HMP people in Salt Lake. 
So we have several Utah listeners who we've never met that didn't come to the last meetup in Salt Lake City, but are like around. I see them around on Twitter and and the comments and mm-hmm. Letterbox. So guys, yeah, let's let's meet up. Let's watch. Let's do this thing and watch this Halloween movie we've heard so much yeah. about. Now, now having said that, I will be in West Virginia. Okay. My old stomping grounds <laughs> um, when, when that releases. So I'm going to be seeing the new flick in West Virginia. But That's not a very long drive from Dave, is it? Well, about six <laughs> hours. It's about six hours, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a decent uh, drive. Dave, you should drive six hours to see it with me in Wheeling, Wheeling West Virginia. But if you guys Virginia. both get on a Greyhound bus like Michael does in part... <laughs> no, that's I'm thinking of a Friday the 13th part two. Um, then you guys could, <laughs> you guys could uh, meet in the middle somewhere. That would be. I'm yeah, just trying to. Go. But anybody knows who lives in Pennsylvania, it is the uh, the land of ever, ever construction. There's road construction. Oh my! Even constantly. in my getting to work, I pass three of them, and I, I'm like six miles. Josh, to get to work, I pass three. This, this, it's, this, it's, this nuts. it's like it's like, hey, it's a beautiful state. Call me when it's done. I mean, it's, they're always in a state of, of repairing these roads. It's ridiculous. Always. I can't imagine more road construction than Utah. Is it no, really no, no. worse? Oh, than I'm it, telling it, you. Because the, it's Josh, awful. It is real. awful. It is. I, I, my whole life. My whole life. Uh, and, one last, and we'll wrap it up here. But I was going to tell you, my, fa- my all-time favorite um, Pennsylvania road construction story is when I was driving through Pennsylvania. And uh, there was a road construction sign. And I think what happened was they ran out of the proper letters for the message that they wanted to put on the sign. And so the sign read, and I quote, this exit be closed. <laughs> this exit be closed. <laughs> and it was so funny. I, probably my worst experience, or I should say my most frustrating experience, coming back from the Jersey Shore, we had to come back on a Friday night years ago. Um, I had rented on our way down. We had gotten into an accident um, and, and we couldn't take uh, my wife's van anymore. So we had to rent a vehicle to get down the shore. Um, and I had to drive back Friday night instead of Saturday morning because we had to return it first thing Saturday morning. But anyway, we're coming back and there's a huge um, backup on the Schuylkill Expressway, which the, they should just take expressway out of that. It should just be the Schuylkill because it's never an expressway <laughs> at any juncture of that. Is it ever an expressway? Yeah. But anyway, we're sitting there for probably 15, 20, 25 minutes and they got the lights on because it's at night and they got all the lights on where the construction is. And when we finally got there driving past, we saw seven guys standing around two guys playing checkers. <laughs> and that's not an exaggeration there was wow. nobody doing a, a, a scratch of work <laughs> on this road at the time and everybody is backed up in the traffic oh that's great well that was incredible there you go so everybody I know that the listeners were <laughs> were pining and longing for uh, Pennsylvania road construction stories we have <laughs> fulfilled that quota and so let's wrap up episode 157 of horror movie podcast Wolfman Josh tell the listeners where they can hear more of your podcasting work well you can hear podcasting work uh, nowhere at the moment we're trying to get our other two podcasts back up <laughs> I've been saying this now I think for six months so when I say trying it's not like I'm actively working on this it's something that uh, that I, I try to do every month 
the day that um, the billing goes through for uh, the site payment, and then my, and then I get uh, in some trouble for uh, paying for web services that are not being used for anything. Then I then I look into it on that day, and uh, still no progress. <laughs> it's terrible. But, for um, Josh. Yeah, but oh. we're we're. I, it really is something that I'm concerned about. It's just the month of October is uh, right. kind of my last crazy month of the year. So if mm-hmm. I can make it through October, then I think there's a good chance we'll see the, the return of uh, some of these podcasts you've heard so much about. Um, other than that, check out some of our past episodes. We've been getting a lot of listeners telling us. Um, one of our listeners told us recently, Toast Clark on Twitter, I believe, is the is the pen name. <laughs> Um, he said that uh, he listens to our Halloween franchise review every year in October. And I, so that's so cool. Like, and, that is cool. and we really do have a awesome. lot of old yeah. episodes that are that are kind of evergreen. And I think if you're a new listener, I know we get new listeners all the time. Um, check out horrormoviepodcast.com. Look on the sidebar. You'll see all of our former franchise reviews and themed episodes. Got a lot of great content on there that I'm standby. That I'm pretty I'm pretty proud of the work we've done on some of those. So. Um, I'd recommend those to people. I'd also say check out our T-shirts. Um, you know, it's uh, it's the Halloween season, and you know you you want to show off that you're a horror fan around the workplace. What better way than to uh, than get a horror movie podcast mug and just put that right there on your desk, fill it with pens. We <laughs> <laughs> right. get a lot of we get a lot of HMP listeners sending us photos of them in their T-shirts. You can you know, yeah. Dirty Horror Guy and Greg, they wear those to the to the movie theater on occasion they've sent us photos from the movie theater wearing their hmp shirts mm-hmm. on and sent us photos wearing uh his hmp shirt to the movie theater for the, the new release horror movies we love that we really appreciate jason kind of grassroots level marketing yes jason dragon wears it to like conventions and yeah, with, with horror cons yeah, yeah that's right that's exactly, awesome. exactly. Hey, yeah he sent us pictures pastor matt, pastor matt wears it while he's up uh delivering a sermon <laughs> that's right yeah that's yeah well, i'm curious what the turnover rate is there in terms of new listeners but um anyway you can get those t-shirts uh directly from teespring.com and uh right now we've got a t-shirt designed by peter strain which has a bunch of horror icons on it a t-shirt designed uh, by armored foe which is kind of like a heavy metal style design and then one designed by Sharon Rowan. That's it's kind of a tribute to the movie It that came out at Chapter One that came out last year. You know the mm-hmm. it breaks his arm and it says loser on his arm and he changes it to lover. We've got kind of a, like a lovers club T-shirt. Yeah, it's awesome. Call that. I really like that. So anyway, those are all at Teespring.com/stores/horrormoviecast. And we've got a little surprise coming up. At, on that storefront uh, very soon here in the next definitely before Halloween from Peter Strain he's going to give us another little item to throw up there not a t-shirt oh, nice. so if you're looking for a t-shirt still go ahead and, and get one of those but uh, there's another little item maybe coming our way alright that sounds great Josh thank yeah, you that's awesome I can't wait and, and what about you David where can people check you oh, out sorry can I, get, can I give one more plug mm-hmm. uh, sorry follow me on on uh Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd and, and stuff at Icarus Arts, which is the name of my production. Okay. What about you, Dave? Um, same old, same old. Uh, DVDinfatuation.com. 
Uh, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at DVD Infatuation. Uh, also Facebook, Instagram. Um, I am on uh, several other podcasts, as Josh was saying. Um, the Universal Monsters cast, the um, which hopefully we'll get back up and going soon. We're, we're still um, doing The Mummy. We still have a few more, I think, episodes to go for that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Josh. Um, but uh, it's yeah, been great. Yeah, now we know that we're going to do Creeps from Full Moon Features, so that's exciting. That's right, yeah. That's awesome. And uh, and also, there's been some recent stirrings on the front of Dark Universe. Um, some recent quotes that uh, the Dark sure. Universe is not dead, and that they are looking into doing something else. Yeah. Although I, I will say this was part of my Venom review. Um, Ruben Fleischer, who you know is for horror fans most notably directed Zombieland, but also directed recently Venom. Um, he is attached to a Jekyll movie. Not excited about that. I will say. No, <laughs> no I'm like I'm hoping they don't go that route next. Ugh. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after seeing the bizarre oddity that is Venom. <laughs> I mean, it was. Which is already kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde movie. Exactly. I don't want to see that repeated. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was fun in a in a weird, quirky, like. Really bad. What is going on kind of way. But, like, honestly, Upgrade does that a lot better. Yeah. The whole thing. But, anyways. Well, I- and anyway, just real quick, um, if you're looking to uh, purchase some DVDs, I do still have some. I did recently sell a whole slew of them um, here in the neighborhood and um, at other places locally. So my once almost 600 is down to, I think, just about 250, um, some of which are Wolfman Josh's as well. Um and uh, you know, check it out. There's still some decent ones out there. Uh, you know, some good movies, some classic movies. Um, you know, if, if you're interested in picking them up, but uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, dwindling. But there are still some really good ones left if you want to check that out. Also, all right, thank you. And as for me, you can still hear our little clown show over at moviepodcastweekly.com we review new stuff that's in theaters and it's a good time so we hope you check that out and and don't forget to check out our friends we got uh gilman joel from earlier in the show we hope you'll check out spooky flicks fest and also don't forget to check out uh vicious victor or victor h rodriguez he's got some books for sale on amazon and uh we'll have links in the show notes for you and we love your comments, so get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community. You can leave us a comment in the show notes for this episode or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail at 801-382-8789. And you can find all of our past episodes, all 157, at horrormoviepodcast.com. That's our website. That's the same place where you can find our back archives of the weekly horror movie podcast and horror metropolis you can subscribe free in itunes aka apple podcasts and leave us a review there if you don't mind we're also on twitter at horror movie cast i want to thank fred ingram for the use of his music for the horror movie podcast theme song you can find more of fred's music at frederickingram.com we also like to thank kagan breitenbach for his classical reworking of fred's original theme 
You can find more of Kagan's work at kaganbrightenbach.com. We'll have both of those linked in the show notes. I think that's it for episode 157. So we hope you will join us next week to hear the second part of our Hellraiser franchise reviews. We're going to do films 6 through 10. And thanks for listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Uh, I can be found <laughs> at Universal Monsters Cast. So uh, with the, the wonderful and always wonderfully great to listen to Wolfman Jack and Dave Dr. Chuck Becker <laughs> and occasionally the bride. So ho- hopefully we'll we'll have uh, have some more stuff with her in the in the not too distant future as well. So, uh, so sorry, Joel, sorry. to interrupt you. Now, is that Wolfman Jack or Wolfman Josh? Did I say Jack? Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Can you please edit that? Holy shite. Wow. I don't know what the hell. It's, you, it's, you know what? It's almost one o'clock in the morning. And as I told you, Jay, I am not used to it. Oh my God! I'm sorry, Josh. All right, we can. We, yeah, we, we can. Jack. All yeah. right. We can. <laughs> <laughs> After uh, a little bit of uh, you know wrestling with Skype, guys, do you think it's accurate to say that even in hell, our Skype suffering is legendary? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. Tonight. <laughs>